I'm Kevin Hageman. And I'm Dan Hageman. And we are executive producers of Star Trek Prodigy. And you are listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents... Neil Before Pod. Hello and welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that, unlike the Loch Ness Monster Hunters, remembered to press record. Did I remember to press record? Yes, I did. I can sit on my pedestal and judge them. That's fine. I'm your host, Craig, and we're here to discuss the news and trailers and other bits and pieces from the month of August in the year 2023. Joining me once again for this list of stuff to talk about is Andrew. Hello. Hello there. Always a pleasure to be here. Did we find Nessie though? That's the question. And if we didn't, are we really looking hard enough? And if we didn't, we'll just say we did because apparently you don't need audio evidence or video evidence or anything. Well, if I think much of online discourse is to be believed, that's generally how it works. Yeah, pretty much. So August, that was a thing. There was some stuff. Yes, there was quite a lot of stuff. And I believe we have a very pretty bullet-pointed and formatted list of said stuff for us to work our way through. We do. But before we get into that, I'm going to remind everybody that we're recording this during the 2023 WGA and SAG after a strike. We as a podcast team are still committed to discussing and promoting all of the things we're about to discuss because the best way to support those striking is to show those withholding fair recompense for their work, how important that work is. Without the labour of the actors and the writers currently on strike, none of what we're about to talk about would exist, and we support their desire to be recognised for the wonderful work they do. Well, not all the work is wonderful, but some of it is. But before we get into trailers and so on, let's talk about what we've been consuming over the past while. So what have you been watching? Uh, a lot of my viewing highlights has been animated stuff on Netflix. One series I've uh, come across is called Adventure Beast, which is about a demented Australian zoologist traveling around the world on various conservation projects, and in every episode getting horrifically injured in a way that should actually kill somebody, and imparting interesting tidbits about obscure animals. The main character is, is actually a fictionalised version of a real person. It's a zoologist called Bradley Trevor Grief, and some stuff is based on his writings. And part of the series' purpose is to actually be educational, just to let people know things about animals. But it's also completely demented and a whole hell of a lot of fun. Cool. Sounds right up your alley. And another series called Centaur World, which I think is intended as kind of a pastiche of My Little Pony. I say I think because... I'm not overly familiar with My Little Pony, and certainly not in any incarnation that post-dates the 80s. So it's about a warhorse who is transported into this bright and colourful and, frankly, psychotic world, which at first glance seems very, very childlike and whimsical and cartoonish, but as it goes on, it actually becomes, it becomes a bit more sinister, and she ultimately becomes embroiled in this conflict against this entity called the Nowhere King and ultimately becomes crucial in saving the centre world and the real world. I'm pretty sure it's meant to be a kid's series, because the story is very simple, and a lot of what happens is very, very straightforward. But at the same time, it gets really dark in places, in a way that would certainly scare some younger kids watching it. So it may have been sort of made with some older people in mind as well. So you've been on a bit of an animation binge then? 
have. And there's also the return of Futurama. Yes, I have that on my list too. It just makes me happy because it's Futurama. And well, most series they go for a long time and then get cancelled and brought back. And certainly with as many times as Futurama has, there's uh, usually some major developments in the show or the characters, or it becomes deeper and more complex. But not in this case. It's just the same surreal, twisted, puerile humour that it's always had. And it is so much fun. See, I haven't been massively impressed by the return of Futurama. I think it's okay, but I don't think it's up to the standards it was before it went off the air last time you have to qualify it with Futurama because it's been cancelled and brought back. Is this now the third time that they've done it? They've brought it back? At least. Because it got cancelled after season four, then it got brought back just for the specials. Yeah, they were originally released with DTV movies. Yeah, and then split up into 20-minute chunks for broadcast. Yes, to, to, to pretend that they were separate seasons. Yeah. And then there was a couple more seasons. Yeah. Which then got cancelled again. And now there is this one. Yeah. At the time of recording, the last episode we saw would have been the Amazon ripoff one, which is one that I did really like. I quite liked the spoilers for it, but the ending where the Amazon warehouse, or Momazon as it was called, mm-hmm. expanded to fill the known universe. And everybody's just like, oh, well, it won't change our lives too much. It's a fun commentary on the fact that these horrible things keep happening and we just acclimate to them. We just deal with it. Pretty much, yeah. Even in throwaway humour, we can still get some meaningful statements while also making nihilistic jokes out of them. Yeah. I don't think it's the best that Futurama has been. I watch it and I enjoy it for the most part. Although there was one episode I actively didn't like, the Western one. I thought that was tedious and dull. Yeah, most of the jokes in that weren't particularly inspired. It seems like they're going after these really low-hanging fruit topical things. So you've got binge-watching and... Bitcoin mining and Amazon. It just feels like these really obvious things to go after. And I don't necessarily think they've been approaching them in a particularly clever or nuanced way. I do see what you're saying, but for me personally, I'm putting it accepting of it because I'm just like glad to have it back because <laughs> it's a show I've always enjoyed and I'm always happy when there's going to be more of it. Fair enough. So anything else been on the docket or is that everything that you can think of? A couple more really good things. One was a film called Nimona, which is like a sci-fi thing, but it's set in this world that also has kind of fantasy traditions. It's about this disgraced knight who was framed for this heinous crime attempting to clear his name and ends up teaming up with this completely psychotic girl who can shapeshift. And the pair of them just end up causing utter chaos while also discovering the truth of what actually happened. Is this the thing that was touted as being one of the gayest things in recent memory? It may have been. It was based on a webcomic that was uh, written by N.D. Stevenson, who was the person responsible for She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, which was absolutely one of the gayest things in recent memory. <laughs> it certainly isn't as overtly queer as, as she was, but there are certainly more than a few gay overtones to it. Yeah, I did hear people talking about that here and there. I didn't watch it myself, but it was something that was part of the conversation for five minutes. Yeah, and finally, on the non-animation front, there's a Disney Plus series called American Born Chinese. It's about an American kid who's the son of Chinese immigrants, who at school meets this other Chinese boy who, it transpires, is the son of Sun Wukong, the Monkey King. And if anyone's unaware, is a character from Chinese literature who has been adapted into 
countless films and TV shows over the years. Most notably, this 70s series called Monkey, a very low-budget fantasy martial arts series, which has quite a large cult following. That was fed into obscurity a bit now. Anyway, the story deals with a growing war between various gods and supernatural entities, but it also deals with how there can sometimes be a clash in personal culture and identity, and how the, the national cultural identity that your parents expect you to adopt might not be the one that you do based purely on account of where you live. Which is actually something I can relate to, seeing as I grew up in, in the Scottish borders with English parents, which if anyone's ever wondered is why my accent is all over the place. And I do get that there's a considerably larger cultural disconnect between China and America than there is between Scotland and England, but that idea was definitely something I could personally relate to. And it is also just a very, very well-written series that I think a lot of people really enjoy. Cool. I haven't heard of that one. That seems to have kind of snuck in. Yeah, it, it seems like it was one of those series that Disney just slapped up there and didn't actually bother advertising in the same way that Netflix does with everything. And they'll delete it soon, probably, for no reason. More than likely. My viewing has been weird and varied, actually. On the TV front, I've been watching the animated My Adventures with Superman, which is all right. I quite like it. It's a little bit too anime for me. I'm not hugely into anime, so I find it sometimes a bit much in terms of trying to access it. But I like the setup, which is Clark, Jimmy and Lois are all interns at the Daily Planet who work together, with Lois being obviously the far more ambitious of the trio. She sort of leads them along, even though they're at the same level. So that dynamic really works. Obviously, they're younger. Jack Quaid, in his quest to be in everything, (laughs) is now Superman, which sometimes is a bit jarring because I just hear Boimler when he speaks sometimes. Absolute same. Even though I've seen him as Huey in The Boys, but now when I watch The Boys and see Huey, I'm like, it's Boimler, but in real life, which you would have seen in Strange New Worlds if you saw the crossover episode. Indeed, yes, which is actually a very good episode that I really enjoyed. Yeah, so it's pretty good, and I was really into its storytelling, and then at the end of episode eight, they suggest the coming of an evil Superman story, and I immediately cringed because... Why do we always have to go down that route? Yeah, because over the last few years, we've had things like Injustice and Invincible and Brightburn and The Boys. So I think the whole evil Superman thing is a bit done right now. And in the Snyderverse, there was the Superman's going to go nuts one day and we're going to have to fight him. And they did it a bit in Superman and Lois as well. At this point, not doing evil Superman would be a surprise. Yes, that was one of the things that I really liked about Superman and Lois to begin with, because over the last while there's been such an effort to constantly do new and interesting and different things with Superman. They're simply portraying Clark as just this fundamentally decent person who wants to do good in the world just seems like revelatory storytelling because it's not a take on him that we see anymore. Yeah, but you still had the, in the alternate universe, here's the evil Superman that destroyed that universe or whatever so it's still a thing it's still in there and it shouldn't be because the point of the character is he'll never go in that direction exactly and it's frustrating that so many people seem to not get this yeah but they haven't deployed it yet i've got one episode left of the season to watch as we record there's been nine and there's a tenth episode so we'll see what they do with it but the fact that they're bringing that in as a oh what if this happens doesn't fill me with much confidence because it's never interesting Agreed. Already talked about Futurama and my thoughts on that. The other TV thing I've been watching was Ahsoka. I watched the first two episodes and I was far from impressed. I didn't think it was that interesting, that engaging, that exciting. I already have my issues with the casting and I'm aware I bring that with me. I don't like Rosario Dawson's Ahsoka very much. And the other two animated recastings, Hera and Sabine, don't really like them either. They don't feel like the characters to me. 
So it's going to be a challenge to keep watching it. And Disney continue to not understand how lightsabers work. There is a bit in the second episode where someone gets run through by a lightsaber and they're fine. Right. I haven't got around to starting it yet, partly for the reasons you mentioned. Because for me, Ahsoka is and always will be Ashley Eckstein. And the fact that it's not her playing the character, she's automatically lost such a huge part of what made her so popular in the first place. I think it would be fine if they'd cast someone or if Rosario Dawson was able to recapture the vibe of that performance, but it seems like they're playing completely different characters. And I get that it's years later, but I also don't think she would have changed that much. Yeah, but it's also not that many years later from when we saw her in Rebels. Obviously in Rebels, she's older and less idealistic, but she's still got the same kind of spark, like the same energy. And... Rosario Dawson's taking the character just seems too jaded and cynical. And that's not who Ahsoka is. I agree. And I think a lot of people are criticising the show just for being not that good. The first couple of episodes just being not that engaging. But there'll be a variety of opinions over. I will keep watching it for now. Although the funniest thing is, it's another Star Wars story where there's a map that will help them find someone's very specific. <laughs> there are all these cartographers that make maps to people. <laughs> it seems like a very specialised talent. <laughs> and if someone were actually able to do that, you'd think it would come up more often. You would think so, but apparently not. It comes up all the time, I guess, in Star Wars. I meant in terms of the fact that there exist people who possess this improbable talent. I think it's more down to the people that are trying to hide going to these places where they can easily be found, but only by these people that know about these remote locations that they'll go to. I don't know, it's a big galaxy. It could be anywhere. What if you go and hide somewhere else? But anyway. We'll see how it pans out. There's only been two as we record, so who knows. On the movie front, I've seen quite a few things. I saw Blue Beetle, unlike most of the world, and I thought it was okay. I liked the actors. I thought the story was okay, but as is common on this podcast, we seem to try and craft a different film based on the ingredients that have been presented to us in the film that we got. We did that with Spider-Man No Way Home. We did that with Quantumania. And we kind of do that with The Flash, but that podcast isn't out yet. The film Flash, not the TV show when that one is out. There was this notion of the sentient suit and Jaime Reyes connecting to it. And that seemed to be your film there. That seemed to be what it should be about. But they didn't make that film. It just sort of comes up occasionally. There's a bit early on where Jaime's like, no, don't kill. I'm not one to kill anybody. And then later on, the suit's like, we're not killers, Jaime. And you don't see the in-between part where... They meet in the middle on that one. It's a lot of stuff like that. It should have been the disparate personalities of Jaime and the suit and them trying to find a way to work together. That's what the film should have been. But it ended up just being a model of a bunch of different things. I'm not hugely familiar with Jaime Reyes, but I've seen him in a couple of animated series. And Smallville. I don't remember that. He was in the Booster Gold episode in the final season. Oh, God, so he was, yeah. Let's come again to that. I just blitzed it like so quickly. I think I've actually forgotten a lot of what I watched. He was a secondary character in that. It was more about Booster Gold, but yeah. he was there. So it seems that that is the way that he's typically portrayed, is that he and the Scarab are constantly at odds in the best and the most moral way to proceed and have to find compromises with, with each other. That's essentially it. And the film touches on it, but it doesn't really do an awful lot with it. It does some really good stuff with Jaime's culture and his family and stuff like that. So it really ticks a lot of boxes in terms of representation. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way. I think it's really good the way that it does that. So it doesn't just have him be a, a Latin character and that's it. They do build the world around him, his family life and so on. That's all really good. 
and it looks good, which is rare for a comic book movie these days, that it actually looks good. The visual effects are actually good. There are some practical suit work and all that stuff, so props there. Let's hope James Gunn is telling the truth when he says, this is going to be the start of my universe with this character. I don't think he is, though, but... If they can keep the actor, I mean, why not? Why would you recast Blue Beetle necessarily when you have an actor who wants to do it? It does seem like the things that James Gunn says or things that James Gunn has been reported to have said can't always be relied upon, which we will indeed touch on later in this podcast. Indeed, we will. So that was Blue Beetle, another film I saw was Gran Turismo, which I thought was fine. It was the standard Rocky story, really, the rags to riches almost sporting movie. The racing looked pretty good. I don't think they did enough with the whole video game overlay stuff, which I think was its unique point that it could have done more with, but it was pretty good. I don't think you can call it a video game adaptation, though. I think it's more of a story that's based on a story that happens to contain a video game rather than it being a direct adaptation of a video game because it's about this guy's life that just so happened to start because he was playing this video game. That's certainly the way I I looked at it. So we can't count it as one of the good video game adaptations, really. But people will, because that's the way the internet works, I guess. Exactly. It was fine. I wouldn't rush out to see it, but I wouldn't turn it off if it was on. That's (laughs) about as good as I can get with that. I saw Meg 2, The Trench, which I thought was actually two-thirds of a really boring film. It's really strange how it takes so long to get to the thing that is actually its selling point. They spend too much time poncing about on the ocean floor because they're stranded there and they have to escape, basically. And there's maybe Megs around, but it's not a big deal at that point. And then the last half hour is B-movie schlock silliness of Jason Statham and others fighting against giant prehistoric sharks, which is the fun part. Yeah, which, which is a bit confusing, really, because that was pretty much the issue with the first movie as well. When your selling point is... Jason Statham fighting a giant prehistoric shark, then your movie should feature a lot of Jason Statham fighting a giant prehistoric shark. And for it not to do this just seems like a massive oversight. And with that being, as I said, like the principal issue with the first film, to then repeat that is just confusing. Pretty much. But it was fine. Jason Statham's actually pretty good. He's a good example of the not very good actor, but decent in an action film type actors. Unlike Vin Diesel, who's just terrible in everything he does. Except Iron Giant, I guess, and Groot. And he's not asked to do very much in those roles, which helps. But anything else, he's useless. But Jason Statham, he has a presence, I would say, that I think works for those kinds of films. And he has one great line in it, and I'll just spoil it, where he kicks someone into the mouth of a megalodon and says, See your own chum. It's so bad. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So... Watch the last half hour, skip the first hour and a half. It's really boring, basically. Another thing I saw, TMNT Mutant Mayhem, which I actually found really exhausting as a viewing experience. It's very quick in keeping with the teenage leads, actually. Everything moves so fast and they talk so fast and it's very difficult to keep up with. I liked it and I thought the animation was excellent, but that was an issue for me, just the pace of its storytelling. I imagine it's because I'm getting old. I'm approaching my late 30s, which will be a reason for that. But it's good and it's a great entryway for Turtles for a newer generation of turtle watching audiences, unlike the Michael Bay produced garbage that was out a few years ago. They were just painful. Even by Michael Bay standards, those films were bad. Yeah, although he didn't direct them. He put his name on them and 
probably did very little else. Yeah, but because he chose to put his name on them, I feel he can be held at least partially responsible for them. Remember Stephen Amell was in the second one as Casey Jones and he was really bad? I've actually forgotten that. <laughs> That's how little it stuck with me. I ended up watching a couple of weird rom-coms as well. They're not weird. It's just weird that I was watching them. One was Puppy Love, it was called, which starred Grant Gustin and Lucy Hale. I guess two CW survivors who are working again. Lucy Hale, she was on one CW show, wasn't she? The Katie Keene show lasted like 12 or 13 episodes. Yeah, and there were also a, a couple of crossover episodes of it with Riverdale that she was in, which don't really count. I'm sure she was in that Life Sentence show as well, where she played someone who thought she was terminally ill and turned out she wasn't. Didn't see that. Nah, me neither, but I heard about it. It's something like she thought she was dying of cancer and then, oh, no, you're not. And she has to deal with the fact that she gets to live for another 50 years or however long it's going to be. Sounds like a really bizarre and boring premise, to be honest. Yeah, it's like, oh, tragedy. I thought I was going to die, but now I'm not. What do I do? I don't know. What do you want? That's the whole point of life. Anyway, this film's about Grant Gustin's a bit of a shut-in. COVID managed to make him more of a shut-in, which I think a lot of us can relate to, actually. Yeah. And his therapist, who is one of the worst therapists I've seen on television or in film, suggests that he should get out of his comfort zone by either getting a dog or getting a girlfriend, or both, actually. And he gets a dog, ends up meeting Lucy Hale, who has also found herself a dog, She's adopted a stray dog, essentially. Her dog gets his dog pregnant and they deal with the whole preparing for these puppies to come. And guess what happens while they're preparing for these puppies to come? I couldn't possibly imagine. They grow closer and there's a suggestion of a relationship. Oh, and she's a free-spirited bit of a slob and he is not. (sighs) There's a lot of nothing original going on in this whole concept, but I thought it was pretty good. It was interesting to see Grant Gustin play someone that isn't Barry. And I quite like Lucy Hale from what I've seen her in. I've seen her in a few things. It's a kind of inoffensive but enjoyable hour and 30, 40 minutes, something like that. Plus, if you like dogs, there's lots of dogs in it. Yay, dogs. So it's fun. Another one that I saw rom-com-wise was The List, which stars Halston Sage, who was in the Orville before she left because she doesn't like Seth MacFarlane or something. I'm not sure what the ins and outs were, but she had a falling out with him, I think. We're in a relationship and it ended or something and she left for that reason. Anyway, this film is about how some couples, they have a list of five celebrities they're allowed to cheat on their partner with if they ever have the opportunity. Her fiancé has that opportunity and takes that opportunity, so she decides to go and get revenge by seeking out the five (laughs) celebrities on her list. Oh my god, that sounds terrible! (laughs) It was kind of fun. I enjoyed aspects of it. The messaging is all over the place, though. It can't seem to decide whether... She should do this or she shouldn't do this. And then there's this whole, should she be with this guy in the first place sort of thing. There's a lot in there and I think it never quite lands on what it's actually supposed to be about. But I quite enjoyed it, despite myself. So yeah, that could be a thing that you <laughs> while away 90 or so minutes with at some point. Who knows? Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I had a couple of days where I just felt like watching pretty low stakes, crappy rom-coms and I ended up just doing it. Fair enough. It's not something I do very often, but it's something I did there. <laughs> I can't explain it. I was at the Edinburgh Film Festival as well, which happened recently, and there was a few films I saw there. I was only around for half of it because I was away for half of it, and it was only six days. So I only saw actually four films, one of which was not very good. It was called Kill, and it was some thriller about three sons thinking about killing their dad when they go on a hunting trip and stuff. It was pretty dreadful another one i saw was past lives which is getting a lot of accolades at the moment it's about the idea of 
reconnecting with the first love years later when your life has changed and thinking about that road not taken all that stuff it's really good i really enjoyed it it's quite an interesting film so i'd recommend it although there's a lot of subtitles which i didn't realize at the time i don't do well with subtitles but quite a lot of the film is in korean there are some English sections, but they're few and far between. Thankfully, the dialogue doesn't rub up against what's happening on screen. So I was able to just focus on the dialogue without worrying about missing stuff that was happening behind the dialogue. The reason I don't like subtitles is my brain can't do two things at once. I can't watch and read at the same time. So it means that I end up doing one or the other. But with past lives, it was easy enough to just read it and not worry about necessarily the stuff happening on the screen at the same time. So that was fortunate. Another film I saw, Chuck Chuck Baby, which was about a woman that works in a chicken factory, hence the title. And that's the name of the factory. And she hates her life in this rundown Welsh town. She wants out of it. Her first love from her past comes back to town to deal with some business and... She goes on a bit of a journey that ends up changing her life. It was really good. It was a really enjoyable little indie film. Not something we typically talk about an awful lot here, but I saw it and I enjoyed it. So if you get the chance to see it, then do. Sounds like quite an eclectic mix of things for mere four films. And the last thing was an adaptation of Jekyll and Hyde, which is set in Edinburgh, and it was a cinematic filming of the play, but filmed in the play's sensibilities. So they effectively filmed the play, but parts of it were outside and things like that. So it was really good as well. It was an interesting take on the story and setting it in Edinburgh refreshed it a little bit. It doesn't do the thing where it assumes the audience doesn't know that Jekyll and Hyde are the same person. So it plays with that duality throughout, but still keeps the characters that are supposed to not know in the dark as they go. So it's a compelling take on a story that everybody knows inside and out. Cool. Yes, that's, as you say, an eclectic mix of stuff I've been watching in the film world recently. That's what happens when blockbusters aren't coming out every week. I have to watch something else. Hmm. Let's move on to plugs. Do you have anything to plug to the fine people? Something particularly interesting, only noteworthy thing I've actually done was a review for this fine site itself, a film called Site 31. It's one of those films where its production history has a risk of being more interesting than the film itself. It actually started production 20 years ago as a found footage movie about this college professor who, along with a bunch of grad students, searches this locus of supernatural energy and some unpleasant things happen as a result. The film never got finished and its footage just ended up getting shelved. But the guy who played the professor had an idea of resurrecting the story and having a majority of this set in the present day, but footage that was previously shot used as flashback material. So it sees the professor awaking from a coma and a psychologist, who is also a former nun, attempts to establish exactly what happened. It's actually done very, very well for its limited budget. It's also inspired by H.P. Lovecraft stories with the notion of these ancient alien entities who are just so unfathomably hideous that the human mind is literally incapable of comprehending them and to attempt to look at them will drive a person insane. Conveniently, we shouldn't show them on camera because it will drive you insane as well and hide our low budget. That kind of thing, yeah. Though that said, it does also recognise that people's reactions to primordial terror can actually be a lot more engaging than what's actually causing the terror itself. found that it made what was going along less overt and far more insidious and made it a, a lot more compelling as a result. Cool. It was Site 13, not 31, just for the purposes of technical accuracy. I wrote some of these notes uh, at about two o'clock this morning and I definitely put numbers the wrong way around when I've noted down things to talk about. Just to keep it technically accurate. 
I would expect the same if I flubbed. Yes, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, so read that. That is a review that's on the site. For me, plugs are I've been on the We Made This Network doing various things, mostly on We Are Starfleet, which is the Strange New Worlds, or it was the Strange New Worlds podcast. I will be appearing on Make It So to discuss some episodes of Lower Decks, probably, although details have yet to be ironed out as we record. But lots going on over there. We recently did our meet up we went down to Birmingham and all met up or some of us met up and that was a interesting experience meeting people that I'd only spoken to over zoom or online in some way but it was all perfectly natural which shows that it is possible to forge meaningful connections through the internet only I remember the first year the Starburst held its own film festival. Pretty much everyone meeting up there only knew each other through what we'd written for the site. Because there was a lot of us that had never even interacted on social media before. But basically because we're all a gigantic bunch of nerds into really nerdy stuff, then we all got on really well together. See, it's possible. Not everyone on the internet is some kind of maniac looking to put you in a bath of ice and steal your kidneys. But still be cautious. There are a lot of weirdos out there. There are. Everyone's a weirdo in some way, but there are a lot of weirdos out there. Anyway, let's move on to some trailers. Let's start with the Expendables, or the Expendables 4, but they've put the 4 instead of an A because it's a throwback? I don't know. Or because, as the trailer indicated, they are now completely abandoning any pretense that this series is not completely utterly stupid. Yeah, although to be fair, they never really suggested anything otherwise in the previous films. No, but it seems like this time they're really leaning into it, even more so than they have previously. Well, this trailer does a weird thing where it has quotes from people on Twitter. I don't know if they're real quotes or fake quotes saying, please make it R-rated. And they say, yeah, we've listened. So apparently they're listening to people on Twitter and advertising it, which is a thing that you should definitely do. Yeah, because that really demonstrates high class and integrity. Definitely does. I'm conflicted about this, actually. I like this trailer a lot better than I like the first trailer. I think the R-ratedness of it will probably make it a lot of fun, because how rare is it to see a R-rated action movie these days? That is true. Though with these films being unapologetic throwbacks to the 80s, anything other than that would be doing a disservice to its own very premise. Yeah, although this second one wasn't R-rated, I don't think. The third one had an R-rated cut, but the cinema release wasn't R-rated. And the first one, I can't remember what way around that was. In terms of the Expendables concept, though, I think the Expendables 2 was the perfect version of it. It was the one that had all the 80s action stars in it that you were wanting to see. It had them doing something more than just appearing for five seconds, all that stuff. So I think that was the best it was ever going to be, and now we've got two more of them. Also, the novelty of the old guys coming back to show the young guys how it's done is kind of played out at this point because, well, that's everything now, isn't it? Everything is bringing back someone from the past to show the young guys how to do it. We had it at The Flash, we've had three seasons of Picard, we've had all sorts of, let's dredge up this old guy. Yeah, which is also, I think, ironic, given that the old guys coming to show the young guys how to do it were also themselves hyper-competent when they were young guys and did not require any old guys to tell them how to do it. But at least they didn't have it in their contracts that they weren't allowed to lose a fight. Oh god, that, that is never going to not be contemptible. That's the kind of thing the Expendables should be making fun of, though. Exactly. Well, in our day, we lost a fight and we picked ourselves up and moved on. We used to bleed in my day, that kind of stuff. To make the joke really work, you'd need to have The Rock in the film and he would never do it. Because <laughs> he doesn't actually have a sense of humour. No. 
pretends he does, but he doesn't really. I will definitely see this, though. It doesn't look that bad, actually. Seeing Megan Fox in an action role, that could be quite fun. I know she's done bits and pieces like that more recently. She did that film where she fights a lion or something that I haven't seen. Yeah, which is literally called Lion. Is that what it was called? No, it wasn't. It was, it was some generic one-word title. At the time, I remember thinking they completely missed out by its tagline, not playing on Lion versus Fox. It just seemed like a massively missed opportunity to me. I never saw it, but I heard it was pretty good. Yeah, it was better than I expected, actually. It wasn't amazing, but it had more to recommend it than it didn't. And then she did some action stuff in the Turtles movies as well. Yeah, okay, let's get rid of that. <laughs> she also did a lot of killing in Jennifer's body. That was a weird one, because that was a film built around the whole lascivious attitude people have towards a Megan Fox or had at the time. I've been meaning for years to, to rewatch that film because I don't really think I gave it a fair chance when I first saw it. Let's have Megan Fox, but she's a bisexual cheerleader. I feel like that's how that film started. Yeah, I can believe that. And there was also the fact that it was written by Diablo Cody, who I considered to be quite heavily overrated as a writer. And we still haven't seen the Powerpuff Girls pilot <laughs> that was written by the Diablo Cody to complete the set of what is this person like as a writer. Yes, though if the snippets that surfaced online that we discussed in some podcast way in the past were anything to go by, then it would have been hilariously bad. Yeah, something that I would have liked to have just seen for a season or so, but then it'd be that idea of, oh, these actors are stuck in this crap and we're just laughing at it. A bit like Riverdale, apparently, which ran for seven seasons and the actors were stuck in this crap. From what I've heard, I've never actually seen it. And I've got to be honest, I... Genuinely didn't, didn't mind most of Riverdale, although it was mostly because it really leaned into how utterly preposterous it was. But at the same time, it acted as though it wasn't, even though it knew that it was, if that makes sense. Yeah, but I'm guessing you would never say it's actually a good show. No, definitely not. So it's one of those things where, well, this is popular and the actors are stuck here until they're released at some point. Let's move on to Flora and Son, which is John Carney's next movie. I'm really excited about this. He is three for three in terms of directing. Once, Begin Again, and Sing Street are excellent movies. He's working with Jack Rayner in this one again, so that's good to see. Mm-hmm. There's also some Irish rap in this one, which is definitely a new thing. Yep. I imagine rap must exist in Ireland, but I've never heard it, so it's new to me. Yep, same. So he's making another film about forging connections through music, which is fine. That's his thing. That's what he is into. That's, I guess, what all of his films will be about. Well, I think he's doing a Bee Gees biopic. I'm sure we discussed that a few months ago. That's a weird one. But I think this will be amazing. The trailer looks amazing. I am definitely going to like it. It does look like it's going to be a very, very good film. Though I did feel that the trailer seemed to have too much of the plot actually put into it. Oh, definitely. And so watching the film is an exercise in just filling the spaces between each of the, the core events that the trailer demonstrates. And once you've exhausted everything that it shows, there's not a whole hell of a lot of story left. Unless there is a surprise in there that's hidden well. Oh, I'm sure there will be. Just, you generally expect there to be more surprises, more things you're not expecting waiting for you. Although, I said, I do I think it's going to be a fantastic film. It's more just a critique of the trailer itself. Doing a good trailer is definitely a lost art. Oh, absolutely. But I'm always here for John Carney, or have been on his three films so far, and I'm hoping that he's four for four. Interesting that Apple have picked this one up, although it apparently does have a limited cinematic engagement. It just seems like putting films onto streaming services is becoming a more reliable way of getting people to actually watch them. But it's a shame because there's no chance to see some things on the big screen when you might want to. Yes. Okay, let's move on to The Lesson. I don't have a lot to say about this. I put it on the list because I read the synopsis and I thought it seemed like it was going to be more interesting than the trailer made it look. 
but it does look like it's an intense story with the idea of writing as a backdrop. Richard E. Grant seems like he's doing excellent work there as well. But I'm not quite sure what to make of it based on the trailer. So hopefully you have more than I have, because I have to have put it on the list for a reason. <laughs> I think you're definitely right in that the actual the notion of writing itself is not going to be the core aspect of it. There's a semi-famous running joke in the only writer's think stories about writers are interesting. Hmm. It certainly looks like it is going to be very, very tense, and that Richie Grant and his family will be harbouring some sinister secrets. Where I suspect it might be going, there's a point in the trailer where his son says, you're not the only one, or you're not the first, or something like that, but then doesn't actually elaborate upon this. I think that is meant to suggest that he's not the first young writer who thinks he can get a stepping stone by getting near my father kind of thing. But what I suspect it might actually turn out to mean is that you're not the first young writer who has been in my father's orbit, who has mysteriously disappeared, and whose work in progress my father stole and rewrote to sound like he wrote it. That's my guess anyway. Yeah. It's as good a guess as any. And we just talked about bad trailers, and this seems like it's a pretty good trailer in terms of not giving you everything. Exactly, only suggesting things. Saying, okay, this is a core aspect of the mystery, but we're not going to actually discuss it here, because that's what the film is for. Yeah, and I like seeing Richard E. Grant in villainous-ish roles. Yes, it's something I wish there'd be more of, because he is actually very, very good at it. Yeah, he definitely is. So yeah, we'll see how that pans out, I guess. That's something that'll come out at some point. Let's move on to Saw X, or Saw 10 and X10, whatever. Is it the 10th one? I feel like it's more than the 10th one. It is the 10th one. That's exactly why they've done this. When you include Spiral? No, actually the 9th one was Spiral. Okay, so it's the actual 10th Saw movie. Yeah. This is the film that we should mention that they're trying to force to be the next Barbenheimer, along with Paw Patrol. Oh god, I forgot that, yes. Saw Patrol! Yeah, Saw Patrol. And... It's notable in that Chris Rock is in Paw Patrol and did the last Saw movie. You're not going to create it because that didn't happen because anyone tried to create it. It just happened. So you're not going to make it happen again. Not if you try and force it anyway. Anyway, based on this film, I haven't seen a single Saw movie since the third one. And I felt like it was getting too ridiculous at that point, which is why I stopped. The first two were semi-clever, I thought. The first one was really clever. And the second one was... Not as clever, but still pretty good. And the third one was just over-the-top torture porn. I just wasn't into that. I just didn't want to see that. It disgusts me. I'm quite a queasy viewer. So whenever I see these over-the-top torture sequences, I'm like, ugh, I don't want to watch this. And that's what this one looks like. I'm not sure if it's a reboot or filling a gap. It's set between the first and second one. So I could watch it without having seen any other Saw movies, but I probably won't. I don't know if it's a reboot that's supposed to ignore the other ones or they're just filling a gap. It's not intended as a reboot or a legacy sequel that ignores installments in between or anything like that. So they're not Halloweening it? No, no, definitely not. It's just basically another Saw movie that just happens to be set earlier than all but the first one. Saw 1.5, effectively. Pretty much, yeah, actually. Though I think it was a little spurious that we're expected to believe that Tobin Bell is actually 20 years younger than he actually is now. Because the man already looked like he was 70 in the first Saw movie, so it just doesn't fly no matter how youthfully you try to make him dress. I do agree with you in that even by the third installment the series was increasingly descending into sadistic depravity and it didn't get any better from there. It just kept on getting more gruesome and more elaborate. Yeah. 
That's what I heard. Which is actually my primary issue with the series itself. It often gets forgotten that the original idea of it, Jigsaw didn't actually target people to kill them. He put them in these over-elaborate death traps that always had a way that they could be escaped. Just one that would cause people agonising pain, and in the process of doing so would make them truly appreciate being alive as a result of him dying of cancer. So he developed the perception that people who didn't appreciate the life that they had basically needed to be taught a lesson about it. But after the third instalment, that kind of got forgotten about and it was more about people just being brutally and agonisingly murdered in increasingly convoluted and unnecessarily over-the-top ways. Yeah, okay, they were imaginative, you can give them that, but there needed to be more than that, which a lot of them didn't. But one thing I think looks interesting in the way that this one's been done, in that the traps that Jigsaw puts each of the victims in are very, very simple ones in comparison to stuff of later instalments, which is certainly in keeping with it being far earlier in his career of doing his work, as he calls it. Although, because he's targeting these people out of revenge, which is something a little out of character for him, not sure whether or not they themselves will actually be given a way of escape, and there's a possibility that the story will just be him venting his rage on them. But it's also going to be interesting to see how Amanda fits into it. A very brief flash of her at the end of the, end of the trailer, just to remind people that she was quite a prominent character of the series, possibly one of the more significant ones after Jigsaw himself. The thing about it, to go into the spoiler about it, I think it's long enough? Yeah, I would say it's long enough for the... Okay previous instalments. I'm never going to watch them. Like I say, I'd checked out after three. That was enough for me. And also, with it now no longer being a secret that Amanda is Jigsaw's accomplice and apprentice, there's not going to be any pretense that she's anything other than that this time, unlike there was in the first two movies. I think it'll be quite interesting to see how their dynamic will be interpreted that early on. So if you watch them in chronological order, it'll be a secret that she's the accomplice, and then it's not, and then it is again. Exactly, yes. <laughs> Crazy. Like I say, I won't watch this, but I rightly assume that you are up to date with the franchise. I am, yes. So we're able to give some insight into what this is, actually. Because I did wonder if it was just going to be a reboot. This is now Saw 2, and then we're just going to make another eight films after this again. They might go down that route, actually. There's no reason that they wouldn't after this. Yeah, the instalment prior to Spiral, which was confusingly named Jigsaw, that also involved some of what Jigsaw was doing earlier on chronologically, as well as the principal plot in their appearance to be a copycat serial killer working. So we can look forward to a lot of, here's why Saw X doesn't add up with the rest of the franchise type articles. I think there'll be some people who will try that, but I also think that, given that it's only the original movie that it can chronologically contradict, I don't think there's going to be much potential for that. Unless there's developments that it ends up contradicting later on. Possibly, but but I think any attempt to, to do that is just going to be glorified nitpicking. But then so much of internet writing nowadays is that. Yeah, people don't understand metaphor and all these kinds of things. And throw around the word plot hole as if it means anything to them, but it doesn't. <laughs> no, it's not a plot hole, you just weren't paying attention. Anyway, still in the horror sequel, why are they making this phase, is The Exorcist Believer. One of my notes says that a fortune was paid for the rights to The Exorcist, and this is what they've come up with. Funnily enough, when we talked about The Pope's Exorcist in a previous podcast, I mentioned that there's nothing about it that looks like anything we haven't seen before, and this is the same. What about this is worth existing? What are they doing that's any different? There's two little girls possessed. (laughs) Seriously, that's it. The long-awaited showdown between the demon and someone that was in the first one. Yes, yeah, showdown between Pazuzu and Reagan's mother, because that's what everyone wants to see. Is this going to ignore all the Exorcist sequels? 
Yes, yes it is. So this one absolutely will be Halloweening it. Okay. But no one's seen the Exorcist sequel, so it's fine, I guess. Yeah, and to be honest, they're just as well not bothering. They are <laughs> not good films. Also, I'll be very, very shocked if at no point in this film there is not a quote-unquote surprise cameo from Linda Blair. Hmm. And then announcing that she's going to be in the next one full time. Exactly. Yeah, so it's not just me. This just looks like standard exorcist fare. Yeah, absolutely. And especially since the film ended up inspiring a lot of imitators later on, it's really nothing earth shattering anyway, because the exorcist set a standard and then a bunch of other things copied it afterwards anyway. Yeah, because I think when you have an example of a film that is such a seminal installment of a very specific subgenre, then anything that comes after it is always going to end up being compared to it. And because The Exorcist was just such a spectacular film, just literally everything about it, it's not just that failed attempts to capitalise on its success just look bad. It also just makes you ask why you even bother in the first place, which I think would make quite a good tagline for this film, actually. <laughs> I think one of the best versions of it I saw was in the Angel episode in season one, actually, where they had to exorcise a demon from a little boy. You know, it's been that long since I've watched Angel. I honestly haven't watched Angel since it first aired on TV in the 90s. Oh, well, that'll be something that you can return to one of these days. Yeah, it might be worth it just to see if it still resonates the same when I'm 20 years older. Anyway, let's move on. We have 57 Seconds, which has Josh Hutcherson and Morgan Freeman in it. It looks like a pretty good time travel concept, but it looks like they're actually maybe going to deploy it in a kind of a boring way. That is exactly what I wrote about it as well, actually. <laughs> also... I did write, is it like that Futurama time travel device where it takes as long to recharge as they travel back? I mean, that would explain why you can't just keep hopping back 57 seconds until you get back in time by like hours, weeks, days, whatever. Yeah, they are going to need to justify that. Though I think it's just going to be like a single line of dialogue. Probably Josh Hutchinson's character literally asking that question. And then more people telling him, yeah, that no, doesn't work like that. No, it takes a minute to recharge, so tough. I will watch it though. I think it will be probably quite fun in the first half where he's just mucking about, cheating at gambling and all that stuff. And then when it actually tries to tell a story, it'll be, well, this is some weird crime stuff or whatever it is they're trying to do. Yeah. So it's like, okay, now they're trying to make an actual plot out of this and it doesn't work. Also, the poster is hilariously generic. It's so funny how dull it looks. It's like the kind of poster that you would see in the window of the local blockbuster in the 90s. <laughs> It does seem like a bit of a throwback as films go, actually, which might make it kind of charming in its own way. But it might be one of those. I quite enjoyed it when he was mucking about with the concept. Then it tried its story and then didn't work after that. Yeah. A bit like Next, the Nicolas Cage film, which is a bit similar. That's one of, I have no idea how many dozens of films that I know I've seen, but can't remember anything about. <laughs> can't remember a single thing that happens in it. That was most fun when it was playing around with him being able to see into the future a little bit. But never mind. So, could be fun. It'll certainly be diverting for an hour or so. Exactly. Let's move on to Fair Play, which is on Netflix and it's an erotic thriller. I put it on the list because that is so rare at the moment. And it seems like it could be an interesting story about the pressures of being career driven while being in a relationship and all the challenges that come from that. Also, it's interesting that it's the woman that ends up being the more successful one. That's true, yeah. Even though that shouldn't be notable, but it is because in all these career climbing stuff it's always the man that's super obsessed with their career and the woman is just kind of left at home bored and waiting for their husband to come home and stuff yes or the woman is required to focus on being a mother or that kind of nonsense because that's all women are good for right sarcasm just be sure <laughs> yeah in case you're misquoted of course they could just misquote you and delete the whole sarcasm bit 
but you know. Yeah, I've noticed recently of issues with speaking in correct tones of voice to convey what I mean is becoming increasingly difficult for me. I don't have an awful lot to say about this, although it does feed into the whole conversation that is around at the moment about sex scenes in movies, about how necessary they are and so on. I find that interesting. I think it basically comes from the camp of, I feel uncomfortable when they're on screen and I'm watching them with my family or something. I think that's the root of that conversation, but it's kind of mutated as things do on the internet too. They shouldn't be in films ever, they're pointless. And I don't think they're ever pointless, but yes, I have been in situations where I felt awkward because of the company I'm in at the time. But that doesn't mean I think they shouldn't be there. Yeah, I don't think that sex scenes should be totally banned from movies at all, because the fundamental purpose of filmmaking is to reflect life, and sex is a part of life. They can sometimes be unnecessary, or they can have too much focus on them. But I also think we've moved past the point where their purpose is just cheap titillation and they can actually serve narrative purposes. It depends on how they're used, doesn't it? It depends on the film. There'll be some where it's gratuitous and there'll be some where it isn't. Talked about Saw earlier where it was gratuitous torture, violence and all that stuff. And you can look at, even within the Saw franchise, the early films, you can see how there was a narrative point to the gruesome stuff. And then later on, they were just doing it because that's what this franchise was known for. And it didn't matter if it made any kind of narrative sense. Or you can apply it to action sequences as well. In a Marvel film, for example, do we need this action sequence to further the plot? Not really, but it's here. So anybody that says that sex scenes shouldn't be in films, they have to look at other headline scenes that you can think about in other films, such as action and gore and all that stuff. Because it's the same thing. It, it depends on the skill of the people making the film as to whether it will be worthwhile or not. Yeah, and I think it's one of those topics that there's such a disparate range of views about it, then I really don't think any one consensus is ever going to be reached. And ultimately, it's going to come down to a matter of personal preference. Well, a consensus will never be reached when people are just doggedly convinced of their own point of view and not willing to listen to others. Yes, which is... Sadly, what a lot of film discourse ultimately amounts to. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Anyway, this looks quite interesting. I might watch it. I quite like Alden Ehrenreich, just not as Han Solo. Hmm. That wasn't his fault. I think the writing for Han Solo was very un-Han Solo-like. He was really good in Oppenheimer, even though his character didn't even have a name, I don't think. And he's been good in other things. Brave New World, he was in the... TV show adaptation of that that only lasted one season. He was very good. I actually forgot that was him. So, see how that pans out. I'm sure there'll be a lot of, that was disgusting, they shouldn't have put so much, so many love scenes in this film, poor show, Netflix, etc. They could come out with some kind of, I'm watching with my kids cut. (laughs) You know, where you tick that box and at any time they're about to get it on, it just skips to the next scene. That should be quite funny. You know, like they used to do the airplane edits of stuff. Yes, yes they do. Something like that. Move on to Faux, a science fiction idea that has Paul Mescal and Saoirse Ronan in it, where he gets chosen to go live up there, whatever up there is, in some kind of orbital space station that we don't see in the trailer. But the film seems to me more about the fact that a robot will be replacing him in his home, so his wife's going to live with a robot that's exactly like her husband. I'm guessing that the film is going to be getting at the mundanity of long-term relationships, as in a robot could step in and follow the routine. That's how set in your ways you are as you progress through a relationship. And that comfort level reaches that particular point where maybe the spark is gone. You're the married one here. I'm just speculating on this idea because it is an idea where people 
certainly in film and TV and stuff, get bored the longer they're in a relationship. There'll probably be aspects of that, but my takeaway was that it's more going to be uh, about the nature of identity and the sense of self and whether or not people are more than just the sum of their memories and predictable behaviour patterns that that makes them undertake. That too, yeah. Where I'm pretty sure it's not going to go will be the ultimate reveal that Social Run's character is also a robot. <laughs> Because that's the kind of twist that you'd expect in a Philip K. Dick short story from the 60s. And that kind of idea has just been done so much for decades that to rehash it now would just seem lazy. Let's hope that's not the case. Definitely. It seems to have some notions of class in there as well. It suggests that they are working class people or lower class people in that society. So the idea he has been chosen to go live up there is practically unheard of for someone in his station in society. You are being honoured, Prole. Look grateful. Exactly. So, interesting idea. It looks like it could be quite a compelling, low-budget sci-fi idea. I think so. It certainly seems like it has some interesting things to say. Or, at the very least, it has the potential to say some interesting things. And has two indie darling actors in it as well, so people will flock to that. Also true. Let's move on to something possibly less cerebral, Freelance. (laughs) My first note is it has John Cena and Christian Slater in it. I'm in. Love John Cena and Christian Slater, so that's great. Yeah. Probably Christian Slater isn't in it very much. I think that might be the case, unless he turns out to be the secret bad guy all along, which is entirely possible given that he is Christian Slater. Yeah. This is going to be great. The trailer certainly seems to be giving the impression that it is going to be primarily action-oriented, but also isn't going to lose sight of just how ridiculous it is, and is going to have a bit of fun with it. It's John Cena being funny, which is the best John Cena. Exactly. And also, with it being directed by Pierre Morel, is another indicator of what you can expect, because he's someone who has spent quite a lot of time collaborating with Luc Besson over the last 20-odd years, when Luc Besson just decided he couldn't be bothered anymore, and spent all his time just writing and producing Euro-trash action thrillers. (laughs) It was Pierre Morel who directed the original Taken movie. Yes. Also known as the only good Taken movie. Agreed, very much so. And he also did District 13, also known as the parkour movie. I haven't seen that one. It's actually quite good, and basically stars the guys who effectively invented parkour. He also did a slightly less serious one called From Paris with Love, featuring Jonathan Reese Myers as his diplomat, who ends up teamed up with an insane CIA agent played by John Travolta. I've not seen that one either. It's stupid, but it's fun stupid. Okay. This one it has Alison Brie in it. She's always good. And Alice Eve is in it. Where's she been hiding? Right. I honestly can't remember the last thing I saw her in. There wasn't Star Trek Into Darkness. Yeah, we don't talk about that on this podcast. <laughs> Otherwise, there's a three-hour rant that I'm obliged to deliver. Let's <laughs> not do that. She was in some film with Chris Evans, where she gets stuck in New York for a night. I think Chris Evans directed that one as well. I can't remember what it was called. I think she was in one of the Sex and the City movies as well. I've actually not seen either of them. I haven't seen the Sex and the City movie, because... I don't like that show, so why would I watch the movies? She hasn't been in a lot of stuff, but she is very good whenever you see her in stuff. Yes, definitely. She was in Iron Fist Season 2, if you saw that. She was the villain. Oh, yeah. Typhoid Mary. Yes. Anyway, she's probably not in this very much, because it looks like she's just crying while John Cena goes to war. In this Wikipedia page for the film, her character is currently just put down as Mason's wife. (laughs) So, yeah, she'll basically be in that. There might be a couple of... Scenes of her looking at the TV, looking worried, while she witnesses the rapidly escalating situation in that country. Yeah, sounds about right. So poor Alice Eve probably signs on to this film thinking, couldn't I do anything else in my career as an actor than this kind of stuff? 
than the wife. Couldn't I be doing what Alison Bree's doing? Oh, no, we've got Alison Bree doing that. Don't be stupid. Because she needs to do that, right? She couldn't be the crying wife at home, apparently. Oh, hell no. Anyway, this looks pretty good. I think it'll be fun. Agreed. Let's move on to something that maybe doesn't look very good. Good Burger 2. My first note just says, why? Why is this happening? Why are we getting this? Who's asked for this? Paramount shareholders, I guess. But other than that... Kenan Thompson, or possibly Kel Mitchell, who doesn't seem to have much of any kind of career. Did you ever read that people thought he was dead? It was assumed he was dead. He had died of a drug overdose or something like that. And then there was this whole thing that came out where he was like, no, I'm not dead. I just haven't been anywhere. I may have seen that, but honestly, if I did, I can't actually remember. It was pretty much accepted fact on the internet at one point in time that Kel from Keenan Kel was dead. <laughs> and he wasn't. And this will prove it once and for all, perhaps. Maybe that's why. I reckon we're getting the Keenan and Kel revival any day now. Yeah, I mean, to be brutally honest, I actually never really found Keenan and Kel that funny. I never liked it that much. I used to watch it because it was on before school. I can tell what the jokes are. I just never found them amusing. Or rarely, anyway. The first Good Burger, I don't even remember that well. I must have seen it at the time, I guess. But I don't need another one. Literally, the only thing I can remember about it was one of them doing a Is It Because I'm Black joke to the other. Okay. That's literally the one thing that stayed in my memory for some reason. I don't think I'll be watching this. It's not going to be one I'll be rushing to see either. Let's move on to something that I assume that you can't wait for then. Scott Pilgrim, the anime featuring the entire voice cast of the film. And it seems to be a direct sequel to the film, but in anime form. So are you excited for this or have I assumed incorrectly? You have assumed Rightly. Well, if it looks like it's not a sequel to the film. I don't think it's going to be a sort of remake of the film either. I think it's going to be another adaptation of the comics. Oh, right, okay. The film does cover the entire narrative span of the six-book series, but obviously a lot was skipped over to condense it down to a single movie length. And I suspect that this series is going to follow it a lot more closely and will include a lot of subplots that the movie left out, one of which comes to mind is an extended sequence of the Father of Knives basically hunting Scott through Toronto because he's basically screwing around on his daughter. And it's first announced by, he literally slices his way through a tram with a katana. And Scott's like, what the hell is this? What the hell's going on? And just bolts. But what's also interesting is that the animation style that the series has been done with is identical to the one that the comics were drawn in. Although they were originally black and white before they were republished in colour. But the way that the characters are drawn is a direct copy of how they were on a printed page. I do think this is going to be a lot of fun and going to be as demented and hyperkinetic as the movie was. I don't think I'm into this. I've talked before, I'm not really into anime and it just seemed like a bit much for me visually. So mm, yeah. I don't know if I'll be as into it, but it's impressive that they got the entire voice cast from the movie back. So they've done that hybrid between the comics and the film in ways that the film couldn't do because it was live action. It's leaned into adapting the manga elements visually, but there was only so far it could go. Yeah, of course, with it being actual people. Yeah, so it's interesting in that respect, and it's good that they're doing it. I think there'll be a lot of people that will really enjoy that. I think so too, and I also think that it might make a lot of the younger viewers who come across it interested in seeking out the film. It's over 10 years old now. It's been out a while, yeah. And as I am depressingly learning with myriad work colleagues who are considerably younger than I am, when you get down to a certain point, then people don't have the same cultural touchstones. And things that were really important to you when you were younger either get missed by younger folk or just don't resonate as powerfully with them. And that's natural, isn't it? It's just the 
progression of things. People aren't going to gravitate towards certain things. I remember a while back, Jana and I were, were watching the reboot of Animaniacs with Jana's niece, who at the time was about 20. We were absolutely loving it because it was something that we loved as kids, but her niece Shannon was kind of bored with it. Just really wasn't getting why it was meant to be fun. Yeah. And then younger people are more interested in watching short form stuff on TikTok than they are even just a 20 minute animated episode of something. So there's that barrier these days now as well. That is true, actually. Yeah. And one that I find kind of frustrating. This is my sound like an old man moment of the world podcast. Old man yells at cloud. Exactly. Yeah. But for me, creativity directed towards making things to entertain. I think that those things should be things that stay with you and things that you remember and things that you care about, not things that you completely forget about 10 seconds later uh, as you scroll onto something else. That's the world these days, unfortunately. Sadly, yes. Let's keep yelling at those clouds. Maybe it'll change. Enough, excuse me. I need to go and replace my walking stick. <laughs> yes. Okay, the next thing is The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, the Hunger Games prequel. There's a short thing where it's welcoming people to the Academy through the various characters. I don't actually have much to say about this video itself. It doesn't really do anything that the trailer doesn't do, but... I had an ulterior motive for including it on the list. I wanted to use it as an excuse to talk about the internet hatred for Rachel Zegler that has sprung up of late, because she's in this film, basically. But she talked about being in Snow White and said that she hadn't seen the film since she was a kid. She'd only seen it once and she doesn't have that connection to it. And people said that they should hire someone that actually cares about Snow White to be in Snow White, which is, of course, thinly veiled racism from people that Absolutely. don't want someone that isn't white playing Snow White, but that is a separate issue. But it also feeds into this larger concern that seems to be cropping up around the idea of if you cast someone in a franchise property, they have to be really into that franchise property. And that's a bit bizarre to me because that doesn't impact their ability to do a good job, surely. I know they've fostered this through, well, Marvel, they had... Brie Larson's photograph sitting reading Captain Marvel comics and stuff like that. And I suspect that Disney trained their actors to come across a certain way in interviews, that kind of stuff. Even with Star Trek, anybody that works on Star Trek will always say in interviews, yes, I watched it with my family when I was six years old. We always watch reruns of the original series, etc. Everybody says the same thing. It's the party line at this point, I guess. But Rachel Zegler's honest. Like when she was cast in Shazam 2, she said that she took the job because she needed a job. And that was her only motivation for being in that film. And people piled on her for that as well. Nobody's piling on her for this film, as far as I'm aware. I don't think she's been asked if she liked The Hunger Games or not. But I suspect it's much the same, right? She's in this film because it's work and it's a franchise that might give her more work at some point. And there she is. So, well, first of all, what do you think of this brief clip? Like I said, I don't have much to say about it. It's a different kind of tease for the film. It's fine, I guess. Honestly, the only thing I could think to say about it was that... It acknowledges that it will feature a younger version of Donald Sutherland's president from the movies. Yes, and more people with silly names. That too, yeah. The secondary point then, the Rachel Zegler of it all. What do you think of the fact that the internet seem to be piling on her for ridiculous reasons? I just think that this is actually just another form of gatekeeping, in that if you don't hold a certain level of passion for something, or if you can't be held to some arbitrary level of knowledge or history with a particular property or character, then you're somehow unworthy of it. And that is just ignorant. This could be like a really random deep cut example. There was a very short-lived Canadian comedy series called Almost Heroes from over a decade ago, which was about a pair of brothers operating a comic book shop in a strip mall. One of them was played by this actor Paul Campbell, the guy who played Billy in Battlestar Galactica. 
Also Billy and the Knight Rider sequel series. Also true, yes. Was it called Billy in that show as well? No, it was with Terry in this one. Oh, that's a shame. I'd love it if he only ever played Billy. It would have been fun. I remember seeing an interview with him, maybe at a Comic-Con or something. I can't remember where. doesn't matter. Basically, he was asked uh, if being in the series had inspired him to start reading comics and get more into them. He was like, no, not at all. I still don't care about them. And I think just allowing actors to have that level of honesty about something and not just expect them to give some pre-prepared answer to playing a childhood love for something. It's basically not so childish. Yeah. It's just ridiculous that that fans have just become so entitled that they believe themselves to be the moral arbiters of the creative process and that they should have the right to veto someone of not being good enough for whatever particular thing they feel strongly about. Well, there are some really famous examples of it working well when actors knowingly aren't interested in the material they're making. A lot of them come from Star Wars, funnily enough. Alec Guinness famously hated Star Wars. Yeah. That didn't stop him doing a good performance. Harrison Ford is, well, Harrison Ford. <laughs> and Mark Hamill vehemently disagreed with the direction Luke Skywalker was taking in in The Last Jedi. But he still turned up and did the job. Yeah, he still performed the character in the manner he was required to. Although people used the fact that Mark Hamill said, I wasn't into this direction for the character to, see, the film's crap, Mark Hamill doesn't like it. I don't care what Mark Hamill thinks. It doesn't affect what I think of the film, to be honest. And there's also a number of actors from Game of Thrones who have made it very clear they were aware of just what an absolute mess the final season was, even as they were making it. But again, it didn't stop them from showing up and being true to the characters in, in the way that they were required to. Or Ian McShane famously said about Game of Thrones after he spoiled something and people got annoyed at yes. him. Yes. It's just tits and dragons calm down, or something like that. I think that's pretty much the words, actually. It was because he spoiled the return of a character who, when they were last seen, it was left ambiguous whether they were actually going to die or not. But obviously this made it clear that they survived. Right, okay. Another one was the actor who played Sheldon in The Big Bang Theory. He was quite vocal about the fact he had no idea what he was talking about when he was reading the lines, because he wasn't into the stuff that Sheldon was into. And despite that, he's still held up as a kind of nerd icon. Yeah. So they don't need to be into the stuff in order to do a good job. You don't need Rachel Zegler to say, I watched Snow White until I wore out the VHS mm -hmm. tape. Is she old enough to know what VHS is? I was just going to say, actually. I don't know. Well, wore out the DVD, wore out the data stick it was on. I don't know. But she doesn't have to say that in order to do a good job playing Snow White. Basically, it's because she isn't white. I think that's what they're getting at here. Pretty much, yeah, but many people are well aware that they're not allowed to say that, so they're trying to be sneakier in their racism and failing miserably. Yeah, but this Hunger Games thing could be all right. I talked about it with Cap when the trailer came out, and the suggestion is this anti-capitalist rhetoric that the Hunger Games books and films get at might be more resonant now than it was when they came out. That's a valid point, actually, yeah. Let's move on to All Fun and Games, which looks like a generic horror slasher movie creepy games teenagers spooky goings on yeah it honestly doesn't look like anything distinctive whatsoever just a generic story of some kind of demonic possession and lots of running and screaming and hiding and stabbing and discovering how convincing asa butterfield is going to be as a crazed killer which i'm currently not well i wanted to see if you as the horror guy would have any greater insights into what i took from this trailer Turns out not. Yeah. It's also because so much of the trailer was made up of scenes of chasing and stalking. If there's not much more variance in the material that the trailer includes, then that suggests there isn't much more variance in what's going to be in the film itself. It's a bit like, what have we got that's like, talk to me? Let's release that. Yeah, which was actually excellent. We'll get to that later. 
We will, yes. I'll save myself. Hold that thought. The next thing, The Walking Dead, Daryl Dixon. I gave up on The Walking Dead during the fourth season of the original show, so I haven't followed anything since. Oh, lucky you. So I won't be watching this, although Daryl was one of the characters I liked. He's in France for some reason. I don't know what happened to him at the end. He obviously didn't die. And the trailer says that The Walking Dead is now a saga, which I guess it is because they're creating innumerable spin-offs. So many spin-offs and prequels and side shows and i watched the main show through to the end although as with some of supernatural it was more out of begrudged obligation rather than genuine investment <laughs> but that said supernatural will always hold a special place for me even in its lesser seasons whereas long before the walking dead ended i just did not care at all I like completely checked out. I am also of the opinion that Daryl is one of the series' most compelling characters, but even so, that's not going to be enough to draw me back to it. There's stuff in there about rebuilding society or something. There's obviously zombies in there. When I gave up on The Walking Dead, it just became clear to me that it was just the same thing over and over again. They'll find a haven, they'll be there for a bit, They'll get ousted from that haven, they'll find another one, and so on. Rinse and repeat until the show ends. I remember reading an article on the Daily Mash or News Thump or one of the comedy parody news sites that there was basically that concept. The headline, walking their characters find safe place that they discover is not so safe, or something like that. So they'll just be doing this ad nauseum, but they'll be separated when doing it in the spin-offs. And also, with this particular spin-off, it was originally planned to be focused on Daryl and Carol as a duo, which... Could have been more interesting because their dynamic was one of the most interesting parts of the show. But then that didn't happen for a reason I can't remember. Possibly something to do with Muslim McBride having a fear of flying or something like that. Okay. Can't remember exactly. So we just retooled to focus solely on Daryl. Yeah, this just looks like more of the same. There's more of what the previous show did for over a decade. And if you're someone who really enjoyed that, then you're probably going to enjoy this. If you're someone like me who eventually bored stiff by it, then this is probably one to give a miss, which I will definitely be doing. Or if you're someone like me who ditched it in season four, then this isn't going to bring you back. Definitely not. Speaking of potentially unnecessary spin-offs, we have The Continental from the world of John Wick. Remember when John Wick was a surprisingly great action movie that was just one movie? And now we have four, probably soon to be five, and two spin-offs. Well, the second one isn't out yet. The Anna de Armas ballerina one is still in development, but it's that example of wow, you had something really great and now you're milking it for all it's worth. I think John Wick's a good example in the sense that all of the entries have been good so far at least, but there will be diminishing returns at some point and I feel like it might start with this. Although this looks like it might be fun. As long as the action's good, I think it'll be something worth watching. And the 70s setting might be something a bit novel. I'm a bit torn what to make this, really. The first John Wick movie was absolutely spectacular. It was just an excellent action film. And it was a surprise because it was a competent action film in a sea of incompetent action films. Exactly. Part of what made it such a success was this whole underworld populated by criminals and assassins. We only saw glimpses of it, and it let your imagination go as to how this kind of subculture could actually exist, and how it would even function. Until you get to John Wick 3 and it turns out everyone in New York is somehow an assassin. <laughs> exactly, yes. And I think the explanation into that has diluted a lot of the mystique of what made the first film such a success, as well as Keanu Reeves actually demonstrating, oh, actually, he can be quite good as a leading man. When he has lots of action to do, not so much when he has lots of talking to do. Yeah, which is likely one of the reasons why John Wick is such a taciturn character. I think you're right in the end that this series will live or die on how well its action is choreographed and executed. It'll also be interesting to see how well the property can actually function without Keanu Reeves, and also presumably without 
any allusion to his presence, or it's nothing more than a passing reference. Because he'll be active at this point, won't he? He will, but he won't be this feared bogeyman spoken of in hushed whispers that he was by the time of the first film, or for his retirement prior to the first film, anyway. And in the story that says telling, I don't really think he'd have a purpose. And any attempt to include him would just ring hollow, I think. It will be interesting to see more of Winston's character and presumably learn how he so powerful and someone held in such high regard. He's going to kill Mel Gibson, isn't he? That's what's going to happen. Yeah, pretty much. But it's the only way the series can end. And there was also a very brief reference to Sharon, Lance Reddick's character, the hotel's concierge. I think there's going to be some focus on them as friends and the kind of things that they went through together to have the kind of relationship that they were shown to later on. And also, one particular detail, I might be overthinking this, but there was one shot of a woman, presumably an assassin, who was wearing a grey pencil skirt and a sleeveless pink blouse, which was the way that all the tattooed secretaries in the sort of central analogue database thing were all dressed. And there was one older woman who was featured a little more prominently than the others. I'm just pondering whether that might be her. And as Winston went on to take charge of the Continental, perhaps she's the one who ultimately operates that whole system. There'll be a lot of prequelitis to this, won't there? There'll be a lot of yes. pointed references. The way that they do this often makes the world seem a lot smaller as well, because it turns out everyone was just here at this time. That's the kind of thing you can get away with in historical epics, because in the distant past, there were considerably fewer people in the world. But now I can tell you the name of most of the people who live in the same block of flats as me. Never mind have any plausible links to people of any renown. As long as the action's good, I think it'll be worth watching. Uh, we'll give it a go. It's only three episodes as well. Exactly. It's not like it's going to be a huge slog. No. It'll probably be shorter than the last John Wick movie. That's a good point, actually. Anyway, let's move on to Rebel Moon. We have finally have a trailer for Zack Snyder's Star Wars. It was described by Ed Screen, who is in the film as the villain, I think, as Star Wars with sex, violence and swearing, which just made me think of Bender's quote from Futurama where he says, I'm going to go make my own, whatever it is, with blackjack and hookers. So Zack Snyder said, I'm going to make my own Star Wars with Blackjack and hookers. It's funny when you look at it through the lens of this started life as a Star Wars movie that Zack Snyder was going to direct. There are literally lightsabers in the trailer. Yes. Which seems a bit on the nose in terms of uh, linkage. Yeah, though they're totally pretending they're not lightsabers by making them flaming lightsabers. But they look slightly different, but they're lightsabers. As in there's slightly different level of motion blur. Yeah. It does look stunning, like all of Snyder's work does. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if there's substance. The Anthony Hopkins narration, that seems to be something you just easily go for in order to make your thing seem more epic than it might actually be. Thor The Dark World, Anthony Hopkins narrated the prologue of that film, and well, that wasn't exactly epic, was it? There's actually an episode of this TV series called Mythic Quest, which is this workplace comedy about people producing this MMO computer game. And there was a pair of episodes made during the pandemic, one of which was narrated by Anthony Hopkins. Okay. Which was suitably not epic. Yeah, so it's a meme in itself almost. It's certainly close to becoming one, yeah. I will say it's good to see Sophia Batella in a leading role. I hope it really works out for her. I really like her. If this turns into being something with legs that she can take forward and be part of, then that's great. It's hard to get a sense of what the film is about. There's suggestions of mythology and legends and wars and families and all that epicish stuff that you're used to, but... I don't know if it'll end up just being a Star Wars find and replace and it'll just seem too derivative, but I'm certainly interested in it. I'm just too suspicious that it's going to end up like most of Zack Snyder's movies. There's going to be lots of CGI heavy visuals and lots and lots of slow motion, but being very, very 
light on actual plot and characterization. You could be right. However, there are two of these, so he couldn't tell it in one film. And there's an extra hour of content that was cut, so we're going to get another Snyder cut. I just can't. I can't with this anymore. It was even too much when when they were suggesting that there was a ton of extra footage that David Ayer shot for a Suicide Squad that was cut out of it. Oh, that's never going to go away, is it? No, it's not. Just release the air cut so we don't have to hear about it anymore. That'd be great. Yeah, well, that's what they thought they were doing with Snyder Cut, but <laughs> apparently no. Apparently that was now a stepping stone to Zack Snyder directing every DC movie from now until the end of time. Even though he said he's not interested in that. He wants to make Star Wars not quite Star Wars. It's going back to the idea of fan entitlement and the belief that because they want something to be a particular way, that's the way that it should be. Which, again, is just ignorant and childish. One thing that's definitely a shame about this film is that it's only going to be on Netflix. We're not going to get it in cinemas. It looks like it would look great on a broad canvas like that. Yeah, and if nothing else, it's demonstrating that Zack Snyder is progressing to creating epic visuals in daylight. Yes. It's a nice touch. That's not my, my first reaction to this. The way that it was basically described was effectively a bunch of farmers coming under attack by force to go out into, into the galaxy to locate warriors to fight for them. My thought was, okay, so this is Seven Samurai in space. <laughs> Which means it's Battle Beyond the Stars. Honestly, I actually wouldn't mind that. But because Zack Snyder takes everything he does so seriously, then I don't think there's going to be any kind of a sense of fun that that kind of suggested premise could actually have. Could be right. And in terms of the cinematic release, I feel like it might end up getting one if the strike's still going on around about the time that it's getting released. Cinemas will be desperate for content and Netflix will need a way to promote it that isn't actors and so on talking about it. Yeah, so all of the particular rabid contingent of Snyder's fan base because they're shoving it into everyone's faces online. Yeah. But I would prefer to see this on the cinema screen rather than my home screen. It's funny how little Snyder is actually released in cinemas of late, despite the fact that his films are actually designed to be seen on as big a screen as possible. Army of the Dead, that was on Netflix. The Snyder Cut, obviously, was on HBO. And now this. He hasn't released a film in cinemas since Batman v Superman, I think. Sounds right, actually. It sounds like it shouldn't. It's one of those things that if you were to see this on the IMAX screen or whatever, you might be more forgiving of its undoubted flaws that will be in there. Yeah. But if you're watching it at home where you can second screen, as some people do, I don't. If I'm watching something on streaming, if it's something I haven't seen before, I put my phone across the room. I try and replicate cinema conditions as much as possible. Yeah, because that's the best way to enjoy films. Plus, I can stay off my phone for a few hours. That's healthy. Yes, and the world at large can generally survive without you for that long. It definitely can. So watch The Space, I guess. Might be good. Definitely will watch it. There's part one, which is out in December, part two, which is out in April, and the extended cut, God knows when that'll appear, if at all. Hmm. Let's move on to Marvel. We have a trailer for Loki season two. I think this looks good, but I'm actually past the point where I can be excited about Marvel stuff without being concerned, because there's just been so much mediocrity lately that I don't really trust them to deliver something that's any good anymore. I thought Guardians 3 was really good, but I don't think that's part of any pattern that Marvel are creating because it was a James Gunn conclusion to his trilogy thing. I feel like he was largely left to his own devices. So it's more it's his film rather than Marvel's film in a way. But something like Quantumania was a disaster. The Marvels, I'm sure, won't be up to much. And this, I don't know. How much of it's been torn apart because of the Jonathan Major situation, for example? Exactly. How much of the 
plans for like the entire Kang Dynasty saga have been mucked up by it. You're assuming that they had plans in the first place. I don't think they did. <laughs> Maybe give them too much credit. Yeah, you definitely are. I'm sure they said stuff in Quantumania that was supposed to actually happen, but they ended up changing it last minute. So I don't think there are any plans. So I wouldn't worry about that. I actually wonder if this has been reshot so that they get rid of Kang and then that's, he's not a problem after this. It wouldn't surprise me, actually. Let's go back and shoot the original before you can splinter off into other versions. I saw this in a movie once. I don't know, but it looks good. I like the production design of the TVA and stuff like that. They've preserved that from season one. The Owen Wilson, Tom Hiddleston dynamic was fun. Selfie's back. So I think of all the upcoming Marvel projects, this is the one that has a chance of actually being pretty good. Much like its first season. Yes. It'll be pretty good for five episodes and then the last episode will be crap. That's <laughs> the way that Marvel shows go largely, isn't it? I remember in the honest trailers for She-Hulk, they did a riff on Jen's meta complaint that all Marvel stuff ends in a big poorly lit CGI brawl. And then the voice of a guy saying, oh, actually, no, that, no, that's how the movies end. TV shows actually end with the principal character entering a pocket dimension existing outside of time and space, where a godlike entity explains the concepts of their show to them. <laughs> I could cut to her talking to like the Kevin camera thing. See, there you go. <laughs> Although Secret Invasion did end in a badly lit CGI punch-up. Yeah, but to be honest, the less said about Secret Invasion overall, the better, I think. That all contributes, right? There's just a sense that Marvel have no idea what they're doing and there's no quality control anymore. It's just because, right from its inception, everything that it featured ultimately played into the development and ultimate resolution of the Infinity Saga. And now that that's over and done with, they don't know what to do themselves. Yeah, but it shouldn't stop them from making good individual things. Oh, oh no, it absolutely shouldn't. But I just think that everyone was so focused on the ending of what they were doing that nobody thought far enough ahead from it. Nobody thought enough about what they were going to do next. And now that they're being expected to, this has somehow confused everyone. I have some hope for this. Echo, it seems like Disney have no hope for it because they're just dumping it on a single day, hoping that people forget about it probably because it's not that good. The Marvels it looks fine, I guess, but... Maybe no more than that. I don't know. We'll see how it pans out. But the excitement is gone. It's not often now that the announcement of the next Marvel thing fills me with any great sense of anticipation. It's just like, okay, so they're doing that next. Yeah. Cool. Let's get that's over with, basically. Yeah. That's a shame, really. It is a shame, yeah. Anyway, before we move on to news, I'm going to give you a few minutes to yourself while I activate our emergency podcasting hologram to talk about the clip released from the possibly never-to-be-released Season 2 of Prodigy, so you can go amuse yourself with whatever it is you want to do. I'm sure I can get something interesting to eat from one of the replicators. I'm sure you can. Yeah, I think they're working now. Computer, activate emergency podcasting holographic program. Please state the nature of the podcasting emergency. We have a Prodigy trailer to talk about, so... That's what you're here for. I've activated you to discuss the Prodigy trailer. It's not a trailer, it's a clip. So the technology works. Fantastic. I am programmed to enjoy Star Trek Prodigy. You're programmed to enjoy Star Trek <laughs> Prodigy. That's good. So am I. Different kind of programming. But there we go. Bit of backgrounds, you'll know it. But Prodigy has actually been cancelled. So this might be the only thing we get to see from season two, which is unfortunate. But they released this clip as part of Star Trek Las Vegas just as a way to encourage us to support the show and get it renewed or get it finding a home, at least, for the work they've already done on season two. I was reading that they commissioned a skywriter to fly a banner over the Netflix <laughs> HQ to say save Star Trek Prodigy. So there's a lot of passion behind this. And yeah. 
The Hagemans are very grateful for the fan support. You can listen to my interview with the Hagemans. They were really great to talk to. So I hope they get more work on Star Trek because Prodigy is my favorite modern Star Trek and I want more of it. What do you think of Prodigy? I also love Prodigy. Programming jokes aside, I agree with you. It's one of my favorite of the new crop of shows. I was very shocked to see that it had been cancelled and honestly when you sent me the season two clip my immediate reaction was wait i thought it was cancelled what is this (laughs) did they renew it again and you were like no not yet sadly so it was a bit of a high and then a low (laughs) but yeah season one of prodigy was an excellent show and definitely it was clear that it was aimed at bringing in a younger audience to star trek but was still within those trappings telling a very mature and interesting and very unique story for star trek i thought its cast being comprised of aliens with humans not being at the centre of it and the only human being a hologram and this other perspective of people who are outside of the Federation at first and have to discover it anew so you can see how it would be appealing for children who they want to get into Star Trek. I loved it and I'm really hoping that we get to see season two (laughs) and maybe more, please. That would be really nice. (laughs) The early episodes were really well structured in terms of getting people abreast of the franchise and how it all works. So here we've got the away mission episode. Here's, Mm. Here's our engineering problem episode here's a team building episode a holodeck episode (laughs) yeah yeah so we got everything you would need to understand how star trek works and the way they did that through a training hologram teaching them how to do star trek effectively is the perfect way to do it it had a lot of charm in the way it approached it i thought yeah It appeals nicely to older fans and it is very accessible to new fans of the franchise as well. And I think it was dismissed because it was a kid's show by a lot of people, by a lot of people that shouldn't have dismissed it really. But in terms of storytelling, they were doing some of the best storytelling they've done since it's been revived with Discovery. I thought the finale was the best finale we've had in the new era. It's funny, actually. I think Prodigy got the longest season of a Star Trek show because most of the shows are 10 episodes or less per season usually at the moment. 20 episodes are half the length of normal episodes. Yeah, and I guess that does balance it out, but they were able to fit so much good storytelling into those shorter episodes that it felt like Prodigy got more time to get us to grips with the main cast and where they were at the start and then develop them to new points as well as I felt like the build-up of our main characters meeting the real Janeway and confronting the real Federation was really well set up and then paid off really well in the episodes leading up to the finale and then the finale and I felt like it was able to have more of a season-long arc interspersed with those individual story episodes that Star Trek was so good at in DS9 and it was able to do that better than some of the other modern shows just because it had more time to do that. Yeah it's funny the kids show just running rings around the adult shows (laughs) crazy. Yeah (laughs) I really enjoyed it it's going to be something I go back to quite often just as a feel-good viewing I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah yeah, it was fun. And we have this clip from season two, which features the long-awaited return of the Doctor. Yes. I've been wondering where he is for such a long time. Because when they were talking about the synth ban in Picard season one, I was wondering, how does that apply to the Doctor? Does mm. he count as a synth? Because he isn't flesh and blood, so he could be a synth of a sort. There's really no difference between him and an android as such, because they're both yeah, artificial creations. Just the makeup is very different, but what they are is functionally the same. So... I was wondering where he was. I kind of thought he might turn up in Discovery, still running Starfleet Medical a thousand years later. That would have been really cool, actually. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Could still happen. Yeah. I don't know. Either they'd have to 
de-age Robert Picardo or they'd have to be like, well, the hologram decided that he wanted to age (laughs) and just hand wave it away. (laughs) But it would be cool. He's decided that he wants to look around about in his 60s. Yeah. Yeah, Or however old he is. After 900 years, he just really (laughs) wanted to, (laughs) or whatever it would be for Voyager's timeline, I don't know, like 700 years or something. And it's easier to wave that away than it is with someone like Data as well, because mm. he can change his physical parameters, so he doesn't have to look the same all the way through. Plus, yeah. I don't think Robert Picardo's aged that badly, to be honest. He always looked kind of the age that he is now. Yeah, he's just more grey, I guess. But he's always been just this balding middle-aged guy, so <laughs> fine. Even when he was young, probably. So we have him back. He is doing Janeway's dirty work. She doesn't want to be there, or she's too busy to be there, so he's leading the former crew of the Protostar aboard the, as it turns out, Voyager A, which I will say is a ship design I don't like an awful lot. It looks a bit fan fiction-y. <laughs> they asked a fan to draw a ship and it's like, yeah, this is my ship. This is what I want it to look like. Can you blame them? <laughs> I also got the impression it was going to be a ship with just them and Janeway commanding it. Oh no, there's like 800 people or something they said, it's right? It's like a full crew. So I'm wondering what that dynamic will be like. What are they going to have them doing? Oh, I think it'll be really fun. These rambunctious kids running around on proper Starfleet ship. It's going to be good. Yeah, will they hang around with other trainees, you would imagine? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. And knowing Dahl and stuff like that, they'll probably be like, well, we've already been through all this stuff, so we know what we're doing. And, and they'll be like, um, sit down, child. I used to command a ship. Yes, badly. You didn't yeah. do a very good <laughs> yeah. job. Very, very badly. Yeah. The competent one's away. Gwen's not here. She's the one that knows what she's doing. I know. I did miss Gwen, I will say. Obviously, we knew already that she was at least going to be absent for like some time in season two but seeing the group back together again and watching them interact i was just like i miss Gwyn. this is really nice but i miss Gwyn. but it was always blindingly obvious that she was gonna come back in some capacity and it seems like they're just going straight to her so great i like the idea of the present day solemn and the future alternate timeline solemn being effectively two different planets and it sounds like we'll get to see that because eventually we'll catch up with chakotay wherever he's stuck and we have a couple of timelines to play with. So that could be really interesting and quite an interesting sci-fi idea to put in front of kids as well. Yeah, I think so. I've really enjoyed that sort of build-up of the mystery around where Chakotay was and what happened to him and that crew and everything with Gwyn's father last season. Assuming we get to watch season two, I'm very excited to see how they handle this idea of there being alternate versions of the same planet. Maybe the possibility of the alternate version of the planet, even through time, bleeding through into the current one and then being able to interact with the consequences of that future and stuff like that. Yeah, and we'll probably get another version of the Diviner as well, because Gwen's going to before he left. So he'll probably be around. Oh yeah, she'll meet her young dad. (laughs) (laughs) More John Noble, I'm all for that. Yeah. More of that, that's absolutely fine. What did you think of the Voyager A? I just steamrolled on with my opinion of not thinking the design was great. I'll be honest, I'm trying to remember watching it. I wasn't sure whether it was like the ship in space dock with a bunch of extra stuff on it because it was in space dock or whether that was part of the ship. And I'm now feeling really stupid for not knowing which one it is. (laughs) It's a bit of a busy reveal. There's a lot in (laughs) the shot. It's difficult to get a good look at it, but I wasn't hugely enthusiastic about the design. It might grow on me though. Mm-hmm. But it's hard for me to remember what is the ship and what is a space dock structure or something <laughs> in that. It's funny how the A through whatever letter designations used to be just unique to the Enterprise and now we've had Voyager, the Titan, 
probably other ships will do it. Yeah, it's nice for it not to always be the Enterprise. I liked the little throwaway thing about the original Voyager now being a museum, a floating museum or whatever. That's a nice little bit of world building that makes sense. And I also wonder whether, because this is a new version of Voyager and Janeway's commanding it and the EMH is there, whether we might see any appearances from other Voyager characters, because it's not been that long. They would still be alive. Garrett Wong has teased that he's going to be appearing at some point. Oh, that would be cool. He was apparently up for a role in Picard, and then they said, no, you belong to Prodigy, so you'll be there. Oh, (laughs) I'll be honest, I didn't watch Picard past season one. But I know that Seven is a big character in it, and then Tuvok was in one of the other seasons. But yeah, Prodigy does, to me at least, because I've watched more of it, feel like more of the Let's Celebrate Voyager show. Picard is very TNG oriented, even with Seven of Nine there. So I can understand why they might want to put those actors in Prodigy. Silos it a little bit, though. I'd prefer if they just can appear wherever. Why not? Yeah, and we did get Tom Paris in Lower Decks and stuff like that. I would be excited to see some of the other characters, like maybe Bellana pop up and stuff like that. Not Neelix. (laughs) Anybody else? (laughs) I think Neelix is due a bit of a reappraisal in some ways. He wasn't a great character, certainly early on, but I think there was some merit to the character. I don't want to get into the whole let's just discuss Voyager thing, but I could. You know me. I was recently showing Voyager to my partner who's new to Star Trek and I've been introducing them to various shows and stuff and was slapped in the face again with how weird Neelix's character is from the (laughs) get-go. His relationship with Kess and they can't quite decide whether they want him to be comic relief or the Han Solo type and it's just back and forth between those two things for ages until he just becomes a weird comedy relief in a creepy relationship. He gets a bit better when Kess leaves, I think. I think so, yeah. branching him out a bit more. When his main dynamic becomes with Tuvok, it becomes more tolerable, I think. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, there's no reason he couldn't turn up in episodes of Prodigy. They have technology that lets him go anywhere, speed-wise. Yeah, that's true. They've got more technology now. They could get someone in from the Delta Quadrant quite easily. I'm going to miss the Protostar, though. I did like that ship design. Yeah, that was a really cool ship design. It was really cool because the audience got to discover it alongside these characters who weren't part of Starfleet as well. And there was what was originally part of the Protostar and then what was added to the Protostar. And that whole dynamic was really cool. Yeah. And the vehicle replicator, which is a great little thing that they Mm. introduced. One other note I had about the introduction of Voyager A is they clearly wanted you to be thinking about the Voyager theme, but for some reason they couldn't legally play it. (laughs) Legally distinct Voyager theme. (laughs) Sounds enough like it, but not quite. But I don't understand why you're not allowed to either, because you've heard the themes in Lower Decks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Don't Paramount just own all of this? You'd assume so. It's very like, we have Voyager's theme tune at home. (laughs) Or maybe it's just this is the Voyager A theme that sounds kind of like the Voyager theme. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. But I was glad to see the Doctor again. Yeah, me too. Because I've spent so much time talking about how I'm sick of nostalgia and I'm (laughs) playing to my memories of these old things. And then I watch this and I'm like, it's the Doctor. That's the thing. When it's done well, I really like it. And when it's integrated into a new story and it's not just there is nothing but a plate being slapped down with nostalgia on it. That's when it feels really hokey and pointless. But Star Trek Prodigy earned its stripes with its first season very much by balancing the nostalgic aspects with much more new aspects and being very original. So I feel like they earned just a little like, it's the EMH. (laughs) The focus is on the new characters and Janeway is a supporting character in their story. And she's evolved. She's not the same person she was. That's something else I'm really looking forward to with season two, actually, is obviously the crew 
was very, very close with the hologram Janeway, who's now gone. And that hologram Janeway was based on a younger version than the Janeway that is currently around. And obviously that Janeway has now aged and had other experiences and might be a very different person or might be different from what they expect of her. And I'm looking forward to seeing how that might play out the idea of they've built up this expectation of who she should be based on the hologram Janeway and whether she'll meet or exceed or fail to meet those expectations in different ways I think could be quite interesting yeah and seeing her in a proper mentor position as well that'll be different because we haven't really seen that she's been in a command position but never really explicitly a mentor position so there's a lot that could be done here and it'll be a shame if we never see it yes I agree save Star Trek Prodigy Apparently they've done all the recording and stuff and they're in post-production and they expect to be finished post-production for season two by the end of the year. Then it's a case of finding it somewhere to be. Right, yeah, because they deleted it all off of Paramount Plus, right? Yeah, that's crazy. I know there's like a whole trend of that going on right now, particularly with Disney Plus shows and stuff. It is incredibly frustrating even if something is cancelled before its full run is done it shouldn't be deleted off of the platform and just no longer exist. Something that people worked really hard on that people might want to go back to and watch someday, just being gone is so upsetting. It's all about money, though. If you leave it on, you have to pay people whenever people watch it or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's why everyone's on strike right now in Hollywood. <laughs> Support the WGA and sag after. Don't worry, I've got the disclaimer at the top of the podcast saying <laughs> that we support that. But we're still going to talk about this stuff because the best way to support people is by talking about the work that they do. There was an episode of the Delta Flyers podcast where Armin Shimmerman and Michelle Hard were on it. And they were talking about their experience of being part of the union and campaign that they were running. And they were saying, don't cancel your streaming services. Don't stop watching the stuff because... We're going to need somewhere to go back to work too when this is over. Yeah, with strikes like this, unless that is something they are specifically calling for, just support them in the way that they have asked for, basically. And yeah, that's the thing. If everybody dropped off the streaming services, then certain executives would see that as a sign of people not wanting to watch those shows anymore and just spurn them on to cancel shows and remove shows and stuff like that. And then people would lose their income. Animation's different because it's a different union. I don't quite know how it exactly works, but... Apparently, you can still work on an animated thing at the moment if you wanted to. Yeah, you said that this trailer was from Star Trek Las Vegas convention. And I know that there was a weird thing where the actors from the live action shows were there doing panels, but not talking about Star Trek because it's a struck piece during this strike. Except Robert Beltran. Except Robert Beltran. But then the Prodigy actors and crew could talk about Prodigy and show this clip and stuff. Yeah, yeah it's just like a weird little thing with the industry yeah but this was fun i liked seeing it and if it's the only thing we see of season two that would be a a shame it would be a shame especially because it just sets up obviously it's probably just a clip from the beginning of the first episode or something it's meant to do that it'll just set up the possibilities of the storylines for this season i want to see more i want to see gwyn again i want to see admiral janeway i would imagine somewhere i'll take it it's wild to me because it's star trek it's this huge franchise you'd think they wouldn't have a problem with just having an animated show on (laughs) paramount plus it's so weird i hope it gets picked up somewhere i don't know where that would be considering that paramount plus is now the place to watch star trek i don't know how that would work netflix or prime they've both had star trek stuff new star trek stuff so one of them i don't know Someone should take it. Yeah, definitely. Did they remove Discovery and Lower Decks from Netflix and Amazon when everything moved over to Paramount Plus? Or can you still watch some of them on Netflix? Discovery disappeared from 
Netflix. I think Lower Decks might still be on Prime, or maybe it's gone now. Mm-hmm. Although the last season of Lower Decks was still on Prime. Yeah, you're right, actually. I remember watching that on Prime. I think Picard might have got moved. Picard for season three was still on Prime. I don't know if oh, it's okay. still there. It's weird what does and doesn't... I don't know. I don't get it. Just let us watch Star Trek, guys, please. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not getting Paramount Plus just to watch Star Trek. Oh, no. I just want to watch Star Trek in general. I'm not paying for a streaming service just to watch Star Trek. <laughs> I'm very lucky my partner already had a Paramount Plus subscription. Well, I get screeners so I don't have to subscribe to anything. We watch Star Trek in just such an amalgam of different places. <laughs> For me, it's watermarked with my email address, usually. All the places I watch Star Trek are definitely legal. <laughs> well, Prodigy Season 1 is out on Blu-ray, the complete season. You can buy that. Oh. If not now, then soon. And I think I will. Yeah. Just so they can't take it away from me. Yeah, that's the thing. I'd kind of gotten out. Even before streaming was a big thing, I wasn't huge on buying everything on DVD or whatever. Or Blu-ray now. That just aged me. With this now trend of disappearing media and stuff like that, as well as that potentially being the only way to show support for Prodigy and maybe bring it back in some capacity. Yeah, I guess that's a good way to actually just physically support the show. I'm selective on what I'll buy now because of space, but stuff like Star Trek I tend to always buy. Space is the main factor. <laughs> you put these things places. Yeah. So do you have anything else on the season two clip that we've seen? I already said it, but just it's really nice to see these character dynamics again, even in just such a short little clip and just seeing the new interplay with them and the emh and it made me want to watch the rest of season two which obviously was the point so now i'm just like please let me watch season two yeah just it was really nice to see that group of characters back together again and that more light-hearted aspect of star trek and you know me i enjoy the light-hearted and humorous episodes of the other shows and i like lower decks and stuff like that so it was just really nice to be back in that again and i hope we get to see the rest of it yeah let's hope so let's hope this comes to something I imagine they'll try and really shop it around once they actually finish work on the season. They can sell it as a complete thing. I'd actually assumed because there was a clip that it was finished and that was a trailer. And I don't know why I thought this, but I was like, oh, I guess maybe they're going to release season two on Paramount Plus and then it's properly cancelled. But then I remembered that when they cancelled it, season one was removed from Paramount Plus. Yeah, it's all nuts. It looks really good. I would like to watch it. I would like to watch the show. The one thing that surprised me is how much of it we got. It was a four minute clip, which is about, let's say, a quarter of an episode. Yeah, it was pretty chunky. When I started the clip the first time, I saw it was like four minutes long, but I didn't think it was going to necessarily be four minutes of that. It might be a minute and then three minutes of previously on Prodigy or whatever, I don't know. So I was expecting the doctor having a quick chat with them was all we were going to get. And then it kept going and it kept going. And then it weirdly cuts off almost mid-sentence when they're on Voyager. Yeah, I didn't notice the runtime of the video when I clicked play and I was like, well, this is really going on. This is like an episode. (laughs) What's happening here? I was expecting more of a trailer cut type thing. I can see why they wanted to just release a scene and I guess it's probably the first five minutes of the first episode or something and they just want to hook people and hopefully land it a place to air. Yeah, or some of the way into the first episode. Yeah, something like that. So let's hope for the best. Hope we have more Prodigy content to talk about before long. Yes. <laughs> Listen to my interview with the Hagemans. They're great. They're really passionate about what they do and I think that shows in the end product. They've put more effort into it than the people writing Picard, for example. Yeah. I know a lot of people loved season three. I did not. I thought it was pandering garbage. I've heard such polarizing opinions of season three. I just barely dragged myself through finishing season one, mostly because I was like, I've put in the commitment now. I feel like I need to finish it, but I hated it. (laughs) The 
polarizing opinions I've heard of Picard season three was either, oh, it's good now, or this is just nostalgic pandering crap. So it's very obvious which these two audiences are (laughs) that have those opinions. Yeah, it's designed to get to me because I love TNG, but I also felt like it was manipulative throughout, so I wasn't keen basically. Yeah, fair enough. I don't think it had any interesting ideas, really. There's a whole podcast on it. You could listen to it. No, do it again now. (laughs) (laughs) Four hours of me ranting about Picard again. No, I've seen it. I never have to watch it again. It's fine. That's the silver lining. At least you never have to watch it again. Never have to think about it ever again, even though I will. It'll come back. (laughs) It's like Into Darkness. I think about it every now and again and hate it all the same. But anyway, thanks for showing up to talk about about Prodigy. Oh, no worries. It was fun. I would hope that maybe you can do it again with more Prodigy. Maybe. With more Prodigy. We never did a season one podcast. That has to be done at some point. Maybe connected to some good news. Who knows? Oh. Oh, I didn't realise you never did the season one review. You're the only person that watches it on the team and you weren't available. I'm sorry. I think I was in America and also finishing an MA project or something. It was a bad time. That's fine. It's one of those things. It will get talked about at some point. It's an excuse to rewatch it. Yeah. Actually, yeah, that's kind of tempted me. As I said, I've been showing my partner various Star Trek seasons. and I'm like, maybe it's time for them to watch Prodigy. (laughs) (laughs) That could have been the warm up, actually. That could have been the introduction. Yeah, to be fair. Instead, I was like, I'm writing this essay on mixed race representation in Star Trek. Do you want to watch some really racist episodes of Star Trek with me? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, no, that wasn't the first. The first thing we watched was Lower Decks, which was a really weird introduction, to be fair. Oh, yeah. But he still really liked it. He thought it was really funny. But we had to pause every five minutes for me to explain 30% of the jokes. (laughs) It's not for the newbies, I don't think. Lower decks. I mean, it still had appeal and was still really funny. But yeah, there was just stuff where he was like, what does that mean? (laughs) Well, I shall deactivate you then until the next time an emergency podcasting hologram is needed. Of course, of course. Farewell. Computer, deactivate emergency podcasting hologram. Deactivating. Okay, well, I hope you had a decent feed or drink or whatever you did, because now we're going to move on to some actual news bits that aren't trailers. We'll start by covering some of the Neil Before Pod pillars. We'll talk about Marvel first. There is, I think it's a rumour, I don't think it's actually confirmed, but there's a rumour of who we're getting Aubrey Plaza playing in Agatha Coven of Chaos. She's going to be playing some character called Rio Vidal, an original character created for the series described as the first green witch and an ex-lover of Catherine Hahn's fan favourite witch. The report suggested, oh, it's going to be someone from the comics everyone's going to know. Turns out not. But it's her playing a witch who used to be Catherine Hahn's partner or lover. That'll be fun. I wonder if she'll be embracing some of the Legion energy that she once had when she was in Legion. I would hope so, because she was one of the best things about that series. There were a lot of great things about that series, but even with that, she was one of its highlights. Yeah. Emma Caulfield Ford or Emma Caulfield when she was in Buffy, and Deborah Jo Roop, who are reprising the roles as the Westview residents. I'm torn about this one because I did like Agatha in the show, but I'm still not sure we need an entire Agatha show. But maybe they'll do some interesting stuff with it. We don't know. It's just another thing where not every tiny detail about every single character needs to be explored in something that focuses just on them. It's okay for characters to only exist in a story but serves somebody else. Over the last while that seems to have been forgotten and in particular when it comes to redemptive prequel stories of villains. If it is redemptive we don't know what the show's going to be but basically it started to exist because Catherine Hahn was popular in WandaVision and they wanted to capitalise on that so they are. That's why this exists. I kind of same as you. I'm intrigued by what they're going to do with it 
while at the same time questioning the dubious justification for this to even exist. Yeah, but Aubrey Plaza possibly channeling some Legion energy. I'm all for that. Yep, same. The next thing, this is another thing that isn't actually happening so far. It was just Taika Waititi talking about what he'd want to do if he made a Thor 5. And he said, what is left to do to him? It's got to be something that feels like it's carrying on with the evolution of the character, but still in a very fun way and still giving him things to come up against that feel like they're building on the obstacles that he has to overcome. I don't think we can have a villain that's weaker than Hela. I feel like we need to step up from there and add a villain that's somehow more formidable. Well, you don't really need to do that. That actually seems kind of unimaginative of you, Taika Waititi, actually. Whereas we need to have a more powerful villain, because that'll make it interesting. But everything's a joke in your version of Thor, so what difference will it make? Exactly, because he took a character who had a title that was literally the God Butcher and turned him into a villain, like, from an Amdram pantomime. (laughs) So I don't really think he has much authority to speak on the necessity of subsequent villains being more intimidating. I feel like the next Thor film doesn't need to be made by Taika Waititi. I think they need to go in a more serious direction, perhaps. Or just a different one. Yeah. And the thing is, I actually have no objection to Taika Waititi making Thor films, but him adapting the Gore the God Butcher story was a mistake. Yeah, because he just did not do it well. And there is an entire podcast intricately discussing the myriad ways in which he did not do it well. Where I started by saying I enjoyed Love and Thunder and by the end of it I said I acknowledge everything that's been said here and criticism (laughs) of it but I still kind of enjoyed watching Love and Thunder. But that's the whole point of having a nuanced discussion, right? You can enjoy something in spite of itself rather than aligning to some binary side of it. Exactly, because you don't need to love everything about something or hate everything about something. You can acknowledge something was really well made but it didn't particularly resonate with you, or you, you can really enjoy something while simultaneously acknowledging its glaring flaws. No, no. You either love something and everyone else loves it too, or you hate something and everyone else hates it too. That's your options. Sorry, I forgot this was the internet we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Thor 5, directed by Taika Waititi. Maybe not. Let's have someone else. If we're going to have Hemsworth back as Thor, let's have someone else's take and see what that like. That would certainly be my preference. Let's move on to another rumour where the suggestion is that Avengers Secret Wars is possibly going to be a reboot of the MCU. Marvel Studios had always said they won't recast its major heroes, hence why they've ended up bidding such a permanent farewell to characters like Captain America, Iron Man and Black Widow. Legacy characters are now picking up where they left off and while that's definitely exciting, the Disney Fox merger means that X-Men and Fantastic Four will soon be added to the mix. Stuff we already know. A reliable online scooper claims the movie is is going to very likely set up a soft reboot serving as a send-off for not only the entirety of the Foxverse, but the MCU that we've all grown to love. I think if they wanted to maintain the continuity, that was somewhat inevitable, although I did hope that they would get some traction by just bringing in inheritors to the mantles. So we get a new Iron Man or Ironheart ends up being engaging enough to carry the franchise and so on. Sam Wilson's Captain America kicks about for a bit and then he hands the shield to someone else and so on and so on. And then In a few decades, you have an MCU that's completely unrecognisable because nobody who started it is there anymore. Yeah, so in other words, the films and people in them grow and change and develop over time, just like the comics on which they're based do. Yeah, well, the comics, they end up bringing in characters like Ironheart and stuff like that. Well, Tony Stark's dead and then bringing back the original anyway later on, which you can do in film, you just have to recast. The thing about actors, obviously, is they age and don't want to do things anymore. Whereas in the comics, you just draw them again and they can come back. 
Yeah, but the way that this has been happening in the comics for decades is now something that is well-known and accepted by comics fans. And that when a character is killed, you can take it almost as a given that they aren't going to stay dead. But I think because a reasonable percentage of Marvel movies fans don't have an especially extensive working knowledge of, of the comics or how their production operates, and so to resurrect previously dead characters through spurious means to justify their recasting would just end up seeming really lazy and unimaginative. And I very much doubt that this is the plan for them to do at all. I wouldn't actually be surprised. We could have Secret Wars that hinges itself on Hugh Jackman's Wolverine, maybe Andrew Garfield or Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. You have an alternate Robert Downey Jr., Tony Stark, because they gave him all the money and so on and so on. And then they do some kind of reboot where we can have recastings of the same characters and we just start again. I wouldn't like that. I would prefer the mantle inheriting and stuff like that. And I'd prefer the film to commit to that. But the problem is, I think what they're facing is audience is losing interest after Robert Downey Jr. is not going to be in it anymore and so on. And then they haven't done an awful lot to capture people's interest either in the new characters. Yeah, I personally believe that's more down to poor storytelling rather than the absence of one specific actor. Yes, but the interpretation will be in the direction of it's because Robert Downey Jr. is not in it. That's typically how studios interpret these kinds of things. Yes, because studios and corporations behind them have a tendency to not really understand their audiences. I don't know if you saw this, but not too long ago, there was this whole thing about a steelbook of WandaVision that didn't actually contain any discs of the show. <laughs> yeah. Just a bunch of tie-in crap. It's a metal box and little else. I felt like the idea of releasing something in a format whose existence is designed for people who love collecting physical media but not actually have a copy of the physical media it is ostensibly a release of. It's just a peak demonstration of how little these people actually understand the people who give them all their money. Well, it turned out that was actually a unlicensed thing made by a steelbook-making company for collectors to have something on their shelf, so it wasn't actually Disney. Disney are actually releasing... Steelbooks of WandaVision, Loki Season 1, and so on. So they're actually releasing the physical versions of them. That WandaVision Steelbook was actually an unlicensed third-party thing. I actually missed that bit of the story. A lot of people did. It was interesting to see that, and people have been getting up in arms about this, and it's really kind of nothing. But even so, I think the people would believe that's something that Disney would actually do. Oh, it completely is. Demonstrates how little faith they have in their integrity. The copy of Spider-Man 2, the video game that I've pre-ordered, comes with a steelbook case, but not a disc. Because <laughs> <laughs> I ordered the really expensive Venom Statue Edition, and that comes with a digital download, but not the actual disc. Oh my god. So I'm going to have to buy it again and get the disc at some point, because I just don't want to not have the disc. It's my own fault, though. But I do think that Disney will take the easy way out, and that they feel like a reboot might be the easy way out rather than actually working to create good stories within your connected universe that just keeps building and building. Like, nope, let's do what DC do and just do Crisis every few years. And there's an animated Crisis movie coming out as well, so they're doing it again. <sighs> Speaking of DC, let's move on to them. We had quite a saga over a few days. Mm -hmm. Gal Gadot was, at one point, supposed to be developing Wonder Woman 3. She was talking about her Netflix movie, Heart of Stone, which I haven't seen, but apparently is not very good. She said that, as she understands it, she'll be developing Wonder Woman 3 together with Gunn and Saffron. 
She said, I love portraying Wonder Woman. It's so close and dear to my heart. From what I heard from James and from Peter is that we're going to develop a Wonder Woman 3 together. So there was a lot of chatter around that where people were talking about why is James Gunn keeping this stuff and not this stuff? Why doesn't he like Henry Cavill? All that stuff. There was a lot of discussion about it. And to be fair, I got suckered into it a little bit. As in, okay, so we can have his Peacemaker, Blue Beetle, and so on, but we can't have Henry Cavill's Superman for some reason. David Corrin sweats Superman, fine, younger and so on, but it's either a clean break or it isn't, I think. I think they should either throw everything out and start again or not. So this picking and choosing is a bit weird. But this wasn't the thing to get annoyed about because, (laughs) as it turns out, that isn't happening. Sources with knowledge of the situation tell Variety that it's not the case. According to the sources, a third Wonder Woman film is not in development at DC Studios, nor do Gunn and Saffron have plans at this time for any Wonder Woman project in the new DC universe other than their previously announced Paradise Lost prequel series for Max. I mean, that sounds like quite a lot, to be honest. An entire prequel. I'm just confused as to how this story even came to exist in the first place. It's because Gal Gadot said, as far as I understand it, I'll be doing this. I understand that, but if it's something that's not going to happen, then why would she say that? But if it's something that is going to happen, then why'd they be a statement that it wasn't? I mean, the quote from Gal Gadot was, I was invited to a meeting with James Gunn and Peter Safran, and what they told me, and I'm quoting, you're in the best hands, we're going to develop Wonder Woman 3 with you. We love you as Wonder Woman, you've got nothing to worry about. Did they actually say that? Who knows? Or is she just trying to somehow manifest it by stating it? I wouldn't be averse to Gal Gadot coming back as Wonder Woman, although equally I'd be okay with a different take on it. I don't think she's as indelible in the role. In fact, I don't think anybody in recent memory in the DC universe is indelible in their roles. I think the one who's, who's come the closest is probably Jason Momoa as Aquaman. Yeah. That's going to be a tough recast if they ever do it. Given the post credit scene of The Flash, it's slightly confusing what they would be doing with him, even if they were to continue with him. Remember, Aquaman 2 is out in three months. Exactly. That's what makes it even more confusing. We don't have a trailer for it yet. Things I can't remember if... Aquaman 2 was originally scheduled to be released before Flash or not. Yeah, I'm not sure. The last I heard about Aquaman 2 is the test audiences hated it, so that's fun. Hmm. It's very much a dead-on-arrival DC film. It's not something that's meant to be invested in in terms of any long-term plans. They even removed the Ben Affleck cameo from it, and the Michael Keaton cameo, apparently. Perhaps they learned from the Flash that a plethora of recognisable cameos doesn't save a deeply mediocre film. Yeah. Or maybe they're just putting George Clooney in it instead. Who knows? You never know. So I don't know about this Wonder Woman thing. It seems likely that Gal Gadot is not coming back. I don't know who I would want in the role, but I didn't know who Gal Gadot was before she was cast. So that's fine, I suppose. I don't think she put a stamp on it that can't be challenged. Definitely not. And her more recent ventures into the role haven't been all that inspiring. Most people didn't like Wonder Woman 1984. She had cameos in Shazam and... The Flash, that weren't much of anything. She's also not a very good actor. And you really see that when she has long scenes where she has to try and act. Yeah, and I think it says quite a lot that uh, her movie debut was one of the Fast and Furious movies. Yeah. I can't remember which one because they've kind of blurred together a lot. Four, five, who knows? Somewhere around that kind of stage, yeah, definitely. Yeah, but anyway. That's happening or not happening. Cool. This is done with our pillars. Slightly holding the roof up this month. Let's move on to some more generic-ish stuff. The Lando series is apparently still happening. I actually thought it had been binned along with a bunch of other stuff. Brothers Donald and Stephen Glover have signed on to write the Lando series that Donald Glover will be starring in. I actually think the solo film should have been a Lando film in the first place. Yeah, he was definitely one of the best things about the film, if 
not the best thing about it. Because certainly in the way that the characters were portrayed in that movie, he is a lot more interesting. Because he seems like this fully formed, distinct individual, whereas Han Solo there was just a lot of nothing. Yeah, also he has more of a wide-open history than Han Solo does. Indeed, and especially now that Solo stated that apparently every one of Han Solo's formative experiences happened within the space of a fortnight. Yeah, he had a really busy week and then didn't do anything else after that. Except meet Jabba the Hutt. That's the only thing you didn't get to see. That's true. Donald Glover's a talented and funny writer as well, so that's encouraging that he's going to be working on the show as well. That's true. Atlanta is a fantastic series. So I'm encouraged by this, I think. I think it could be a good Star Wars-y thing that we get to see at some point, if it even happens. I think the caveat with Star Wars stuff is it might all be cancelled next month. So until you actually see a trailer for it, don't believe it exists. Sounds like good advice, yeah. Let's move on. The Frasier sequel series from Paramount Plus, also called Frasier, is set to premiere on October 12th with two episodes, followed by a weekly drop of new episodes every Thursday. There are some pictures where you get to see Frasier looking old, and you get to see his son, who's looking older than when you would have last seen his son. And Nicholas Lindhurst is there, playing Alan who's also looking pretty old, because they're all old. And all of them are sitting around in sets that look like they've been recycled from How I Met Your Mother. Yes, well, that's one of the things I was going to say about it. But also, we have a video of the new theme tune, kind of, where Kelsey Grammer is just singing an updated version of the Fraser theme tune. But the pictures they've released, it looks like dated sitcom, but in HD. <laughs> I really don't know why this is a thing. I mean, I know why it's a thing, because they might make money out of it, nostalgia, etc., etc. Et but... I don't know what the need is. We've mentioned this before on several occasions. It's okay to just let things end. No, it's not. Obviously, in a fictional world, Catalyst and Habit, they're going to go on to have lives past the final fade to black. But we don't need to see it all, all the time. And this refusal to let the past be at rest, it just runs this constant risk of making you grow to be irritated by the very thing that you once loved, purely by its continued existence. I did watch Frasier when it was on, when I was a teenager. I remember specific episodes and fragments of plot lines and things, but it wasn't ever something that I was overly invested in. But I think even if I was, I don't think there's any need for this series to exist at all. I didn't watch Frasier when it was on. I didn't invest in it at the time because I feel like I was maybe a bit too young to get it when it was on. It was kind of like highbrow Friends, wasn't it? Exactly, yes. So Friends was what I could dial into, even revisiting Friends years later, actually, I found that I didn't get a lot of the jokes because I was too young to understand what they were actually talking about. But Frasier was even more than that. But when you actually look at it, this comedy is quite simple. It's the idea that he's really rich, but an idiot. He's a snob, Mm -hmm. but an idiot. That's the joke. It's farce humour, isn't it? It's the idea that 90% of their circumstances are created because they don't listen to each other and there's a misunderstanding. You could get rid of almost any episode of Frasier by, hold on, Niles, just to check that I understand what you mean here. End of episode, because the entire hijinks is founded on that. Yeah, although to be fair, you could say that uh, about a lot of 90s sitcoms. You could, and it's kind of where it belongs, I think. Exactly, yes. Is it going to be written differently, or is it just going to be written the same? Because that's what's wrong with How I Met Your Father. It's still written like How I Met Your Mother, but worse. And in fact, it's not even written as cleverly as How I Met Your Mother, because they don't do the thing about playing around with the unreliable narrator and stuff like that that How I Met Your Mother does. It's a poor copy of its source material. And that kind of thing is also wherein the problem lies with a new Frasier series. If it's too different from how it was in the 90s, then that risks 
alienating a good chunk of who its target audience are going to be, who are likely going to want to see similar kind of things again. But then if it's too much of the same, then it just looks like you're not putting any effort into it, and that you're just happy to sign off on any old crap as long as it gets a few laughs and makes someone some money. Pretty much. Cynical, but true. Anyway, let's move on to something I may be quite interested in. HBO has ordered the Sam Mendes and Armando Iannucci's superhero movie-making comedy The Franchise to series. Himesh Patel and Aya Cash star alongside previously announced cast Jessica Hines, Billy Magnuson, Lolly Adafope, Darren Goldstein, Isaac Powell, Richard E. Grant, and Daniel Brule. John Brown wrote the pilot and serves as showrunner, while Mendez directs. In the franchise, the crew of an unloved franchise movie fight for their place in a savage and unruly cinematic universe. Per the logline, the series shines a light on the secret chaos inside the world of superhero movie making to ask the question, how exactly does the cinematic sausage get made? Because every muck-up, the word isn't yeah. actually muck-up, but I've altered it, has an origin story. I think this sounds like a great idea, conceptually anyway it's obviously very topical at the moment it's shining a light on that and making fun of it it probably writes itself the parody is already there you don't have to stretch it too far to turn it into parody i wouldn't be surprised to learn that a lot of the dialogue that's going to be included in the show about meetings about how to adapt particular heroes or what in jokes to make or what references to include are going to be verbatim recreations of things that have actually been said in official meetings because by their very nature they are going to be so utterly farcical. It's a bit like the thick of it, isn't it? The thick of it's no longer parody, except this is in the opposite direction where it's already parody and we're just writing it down. Exactly, yeah. Amanda Yunichi's shows are generally very, very good and, and also very, very funny as well. His most recent one, Avenue 5, which sadly was cancelled after its second season, had a similar thread from his previous ones in that its principal characters are generally people who have achieved very, very important positions despite being utter morons. <laughs> And I suspect that this series is going to play into that same kind of humour, but applying it to studio executives. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. I think it'll be a blast. Yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Sounds a bit like Galaxy Quest, but without the actual Galaxy Quest of it all. That makes sense, yeah. Next thing we have is Dave Batista and Jason Momoa are teaming up with Blue Beetle director Angel Manuel Soto on The Wrecking Crew, the buddy action comedy they've set up at MGM. Plot details are under wraps for now, but Batista and Momoa sold a pitch to MGM following a four-bidder battle in fall 2021. Batista and Momoa teaming up, that'll be fun. Yes, and in a movie that isn't Dune. I think it's going to be good. Both of them have a different but distinctive charisma to them. Jason Momoa definitely more so, but Dave Bautista is, I think, underrated as a comedic actor. Oh no, I think he's one of the better wrestlers turned actors, and he is very funny. Absolutely. I don't know if you ever saw Stuber. I was just about to bring that up, yeah. Yeah, he was really funny in that. He was the straight man in that one, wasn't he? I imagine it would be difficult for someone to be the funny guy playing opposite Kumail Nanjiani. Yeah, probably. But actors playing straight roles in comedic movies, they don't come off well unless they understand and play off the comedy that's going on around them, which I think Dave Bautista is very good at. And also because both of them obviously have an extensive pedigree in action roles. I think the combination of that with physical comedy is going to be something that's going to end up a lot of fun. Hopefully it'll be better than Hobbs and Shaw, where they're basically the same character and it's not a buddy comedy at all. <laughs> Hobbs and Shaw was a glorified retcon that only existed to play into Dwayne Johnson's ego. Yeah, pretty much. But this could be fun. Blue Beetle director, it's good to see him getting work. Yeah, so obviously someone important thought he did a good job. Yeah. Anyway, next up, we talked about it earlier. I saw Mutant Mayhem, the TMNT film. There is going to be a two-season series that will serve as a bridge between the first film and the second film. 
the spin-off series titled Tales of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles will appear on Paramount+. Plus. So they're really ramping up this Turtles thing. So that's cool. Turtle power. Yeah. I have no problem with this. It's the current generation of Ninja Turtles stuff. Will I watch it all? No, no. But I like that it exists. I'm kind of saying, actually. I haven't had any emotional investment in the Ninja Turtles as a franchise since I was a kid. But I've always been interested to see how it's been reworked for the kids that are always going to make up its core audience. But obviously, they keep on growing up and losing interest, so it then needs to reinvent itself for more kids who are becoming old enough to enjoy it, but also changing it enough so that it appeals to the things that now appeal to younger kids. Yeah, it's a franchise that exists to be constantly rebooted. Exactly, yeah. And I have absolutely no problem with that. And I think if more franchises took less of a puritanical attitude towards their material and actively embraced change, then they might end up sticking around longer. Yeah. Oh, this is a good thing. Enjoy your TMNT content, kids, while it lasts. Before you grow up and become adults and hate the world, enjoy your turtles. Can't really follow that. Pretty much all I'd say about it, too. Okay, moving on. Warrior Nun is being resurrected, the fantasy drama series which was cancelled by Netflix after two seasons. is set to return as a trilogy of feature films. Executive producer Dean English revealed. Have you seen Warrior Nun? I put this in the list because I assume that you have. I watched the first season of it. Okay. But I kind of jumped off after that because it didn't especially grab me. Not in the way that it clearly has with a lot of its audience. With a rabid, passionate fan base that managed to get it saved. Yeah. Although I'm indifferent to the existence of this movie trilogy. I'm happy that something that was prematurely cancelled is now being allowed to be brought to a natural conclusion. I think it's maybe just because I'm too old or possibly too straight to fully appreciated everything that, that the series was trying to do. I'm probably not going to go back and rewatch it and continue on with it, but I'm happy for the people who wanted this to exist that it is going to exist. Yeah. For those who don't know what it is, the show follows Ava, a young woman who's resurrected after death by a divine artifact that's implanted in her back. She learns that she's part of the Order of the Cruciform Sword, an ancient order tasked with fighting demons on Earth. And it turns out David Hayter was one of the people that produced Season 2, the voice of Solid Snake from Metal Gear Solid himself. Also the scriptwriter for the first X-Men movie. He likes to dip his toe in various things. But there we go. That's good. If they're into that, I don't think I'll watch it, but sure. Three films they're getting. That's quite a surprise, actually. You would think it would just be, yeah, we'll give you a couple hours to wrap it all up. Or we'll give you one movie just now, let's see how that goes, then afterwards we'll talk about doing some more. But no, you'll have three. Here's your budget for the entire trilogy, take it and leave us alone. Our next thing is there's an Among Us animated series in the works at CBS. If people don't know what Among Us is, it is a indie puzzle game that made a lot of money because it's very simple. Essentially what you do is you run around and you do tasks on a spaceship, like repairing consoles and whatever, and one of the players is the killer, and you have to kill everybody else before they catch you. So it's the thing, basically, and they're making an animated series out of it. If it's an animated series for kids, I imagine it'll be less gruesome than the thing, so it might be a bit more comedic. The animation studio that do Lower Decks, the Star Trek show, will serve as animation studio of the series. don't see any reason why this would be bad. I think it could be good fun. It's not a game I've ever actually played. I've seen Twitch streamers play it, but I've never played it myself. I've seen clips of it being played in other videos, various YouTube stuff. It's mostly because I'm really not much of a gamer anymore, because I just don't have time for it, which saddens me, but 
that's life. But even so, it was one that I became aware of just by cultural osmosis. Oh, it was a phenomenon, yeah. Purely because it was just such a huge thing. And I think there's quite a lot of fun you can have where the premise of it basically revolves around sabotage and suspicion and paranoia. And a particularly quite encouraging thing is the guy who's going to be in charge of this, Owen Dennis, was also responsible for this animated series called Infinity Train, which started off with this teenage girl who finds herself aboard this train that seems to have this infinite number of cars, and within each car is this self-contained world. And she's just basically trying to navigate it to figure out how to escape. Unfortunately, it's not a series that can be watched legally anywhere, as it was one of the properties that Warner Brothers just erased from existence for their big tax break. Of course. But if you want to see it, things fall off the internet. Yes, if you are aware of alternative methods, then it is definitely available via them. (laughs) But it's certainly a very good pedigree for a showrunner to have, and if it's anywhere near as good as that series was, then this will be one to look out for. The thing for kids, essentially. Yeah. Which I think in itself, just as a basic premise, sounds really good. Yeah, watch this space, see what it turns out to be like. Or we could just play the game. We should do a podcast playthrough of the game and see how much we hate each other afterwards. I'll first need to get a console newer than a Mega Drive. You could play it on the PC, I think. So you might need a laptop newer than a Mega Drive. Yeah, same problem. (laughs) Okay, next thing. Elizabeth Banks to top line Austin Peters thriller skincare. Louis Pullman, Michaela J. Rodriguez, Louis Gerardo... Mendez and Nathan Fillion also set to star. Following the successful theatrical run of her latest directorial effort, Cocaine Bear, which I didn't think was that good, Elizabeth Banks has been set to top-line skincare. Directed by Austin Peters, skincare is described as a vanity thriller set in Hollywood, though specifics as to its plot are under wraps. Another one of those. Peters wrote the script with Deering, Reagan and Sam Freelick. I mean, what does that mean? A vanity thriller. It mentions it being a comedy horror, so I'm guessing it's going to be some kind of satire of Hollywood and that something incredibly gruesome is being done behind the scenes to keep Hollywood stars looking young and beautiful. You could be right. But aside from, well, speculation, there's really not a lot more to say about it, I don't think. Hmm. But some good names in there, so fun. Okay, moving on. 13 Ghosts, a classic horror film from 2001. Isn't that depressing that something that was made in 2001 can be considered a classic? 2001 was only five years ago. Yes, and 1990 was 10 years ago. (laughs) It was. The 80s was 20 years ago, and so on. Oh, God. Time is not moving. It's not moving at all. But it's been adapted into a series by Dark Castle Entertainment, the same team behind the original reboot. The series will explore a different ghost in each episode, so it'll be a 13-episode series, drawing inspiration from the original film and incorporating international supernatural tales. There's potential for the series to incorporate augmented reality technology, allowing viewers to see additional ghosts in their own homes through an app. Taking the horror experience to a new level. Well, that's something. I remember 13 Ghosts. I've seen it once, I think. I seem to remember it being fine. It was. Well, the thing about it is, the film itself was pretty, meh, indistinct. I think about the only distinctive thing about it was that it's one of the few movies you're ever going to see that has Tony Shalhoub in a starring role. When I first saw it, it was after renting it from Blockbuster, because I am that old. And among the bonus features on it was a short featurette on each of the ghosts that told the story of who the person was and how they died, and why they were selected to be in this giant ghost trap machine thing. Yeah, I remember there being a big machine that releases them. My collection of vignettes that was on the DVD was actually a lot more interesting than the film itself. So to see that expanded into an entire TV series is something that I'm actually quite looking forward to. And I think it's going to be quite good. I wonder if they'll get Tony Shalhoub and Matthew Lillard and stuff back. Did they die? I can't remember. I think Matthew Lillard did. Okay, they could come back as a ghost. True, yeah. If only there was a way we could bring dead characters back in our ghost story. 
<laughs> well, another thing that's interesting about when it mentions the augmented reality aspect of it, I'm assuming is a play on the original 13 Ghosts, which was a William Castle movie from the 60s. If anyone's unaware, William Castle was a horror movie producer who became infamous for his, his films featuring quite innovative gimmicks. And in 13 Ghosts, this involved having pairs of coloured glasses that each viewer was given. One that was red and one that was blue. And because the ghosts that were in the film were filmed with a different coloured filter from the rest of it, so by choosing which pair of glasses to wear that allowed you to decide whether or not you actually wanted to see the ghosts oh, cool. or if you wanted them to stay invisible and i suspect that this ar aspect is a contemporary update of that kind of gimmick or if not it's a hell of a coincidence <laughs> augmented reality is just a way to do things now isn't it so it could be a fun little addition when they do yeah. it seems like quite an interesting idea why not let's face it it's more creative than the usual direct that you get well exactly Okay, let us move on then. Ben Wheatley, after doing Meg to the Trench, which is inexplicable that he ended up on that, you had Ben Wheatley on Meg 2, and you had Neil Blomkamp on Gran Turismo, and no one knows how either of those things happened. They just (laughs) did. What he's doing next is a six-hour Channel 4 TV series, a horror-based thing, he said. The project will be a Zoomers versus Boomers zombie satire, Generation Z, a series that Wheatley announced back in summer 2019 but went on pause amid the pandemic. So apparently that's next on the list for him. Ben Wheatley likes to do big things, smaller things, likes to rotate between them. So it could be fun. A Channel 4 created series, though, it's probably going to be full of Channel 4 in-jokes. You know, like that Big Brother zombie thing they did? That's it. Yeah, that was crap. Although I did get to see Davina McCall brutally murdered, which was good. enjoyed that. And it also acted as a kind of proto-Black Mirror for Charlie Brooker. It did, yeah. So he's doing this next. Zoomers versus Boomers. It's pretty typical, isn't it? He'll be more from the Boomer side of the fence, though. I can't remember how old he is, actually. He is 51. Hmm. So closer to the Boomer side than the Zoomer side. I'm a little bit unsure what to make of this, really. Ben Wheatley does do quite good horror stuff with things like Kill List and Sightseers, or kind of A Field in England. That was more weird than else. But he's got quite a talent for harnessing basic everyday darkness of humanity and expressing it in an interesting way. Though, that said, I personally find the notion of generational feuding unendurably tedious. Because it's just the same arguments over and over again and there's nothing to be gained from it. You kids don't appreciate anything. You oldies ruined the world, etc. Exactly. And if that is the central premise of what this series is going to be, then I'm not sure how interesting it's going to be, to be honest. We'll find out. Yeah, because for all know, it might be pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Ben Wheatley's one of those talents, I guess, who's hit and miss, isn't he? I mean, not everything he's done has been great, and some of what he's done has been the Meg too. <laughs> we'll find out at some point. It's been sitting there for a couple of years, not doing anything, so we'll see what happens. Moving on, we have a couple of stories about Talk To Me, which is a film that I keep wanting to refer to as Talk To The Hand. I haven't actually seen it, <laughs> but I keep wanting to call it that because of the hand on the picture. Well, the first story is that they've already shot a prequel focusing on Ducket, whoever that is. It's told entirely through the perspective of mobile phones and social media. So they've done a Screen Life prequel then. There's a term for that, guys. You could use the term. Screen life. I was quite glad when I discovered that there was an actual term for it because I'd always been referring to films like that as visual epistolary, which I thought sounded really clunky, but I couldn't think of a better way of describing it. And a bit wanky as well. Yeah, that too. The ducket that has been referred to is a character from Talk to Me, the movie, is a character from its prologue, which basically consists of him stabbing his brother and then killing himself by stabbing himself in the face, with the suggestion to be that 
he was consumed by the same kind of force that was plaguing the film's main characters. So I imagine that the prequel film will be in a similar vein and will ultimately lead up to the original movie's prequel, but just telling that as a whole story. Sounds reasonable. And it sounds like they managed to throw together a prequel on the cheap. I didn't see Talk To Me, although it got a lot of accolades. Everyone was talking about how great it was, so I'm kind of annoyed that I missed it when it was at the cinema and it's not there anymore. But I'll catch it when it comes on home consumption, I guess. But I wonder if it would have been a better cinematic experience to have. It's too late now. Can't worry about that too much. I thought it was a great film. It was really insidiously creepy, almost oppressively so. It looked absolutely fantastic, despite being made on a comparatively small budget, and used a lot of practical effects, which were done very, very well. Australians know how to make horror, apparently. Yeah, I'm just going to comment that. Maybe it's something to do with living on an island continent where everything in nature can and will kill you gruesomely. (laughs) People were talking about one of the things that really works about it is the authenticity of it. It's all young Australian actors that no one's ever heard of. Exactly. There's no distractions by thinking of them as an actor playing a role. You can sort of see them as just actual real people this is happening to. For anyone who hasn't seen the film, it focuses on this teenage girl who at a party comes across this severed hand and she told that by holding a hand and saying talk to me as you took me with the dead and allows you to talk to them by voluntarily letting the spirit possess you. But if you don't sever the connection in less than... Uh, I think it was 90 seconds, it's considerably harder to remove the spirit and they can begin to influence your actions. As well as all the creepy horror shenanigans that that kind of premise would let you imagine, it also deals with grief and the trauma of losing people close to you. Part of the Mingle's history is that her mother died only a couple of years previously and she's basically still traumatised by it. The film deals with notions of having that kind of trauma still influencing your thoughts and actions, leaving you vulnerable to malevolent forces which allows it to feel a lot more personal. And also something that gives it a bit more added authenticity as well, because it's not just these evil spirits possessing people and just doing whatever the hell they like. It's about the consequences of inviting that force into yourself because you're too screwed up to see what a terrible idea that is. And I think that feeling that kind of vulnerability as a result of intense emotional trauma is something that a lot of people can relate to, which I believe was one of the reasons why the film was so successful and why so many people rate it so highly. And the fact that it did well and cost very little to make means that there's a sequel happening. Indeed, yes. Because I thought the original one was so good, I would welcome more of it, possibly expanding the ideas or delving into them more deeply. Though I'm a little concerned whether or not making a sequel so quickly after the first one is such a good idea. Because there's the dangers of, after using a lot of good ideas in one film, trying to make another one so soon afterwards means that there's a risk of not being able to express them again in quite such a compelling way. That's a bit like what we're talking about with John Wick. We had one really good thing and now we're going to have three of that thing pretty quickly. Exactly. There's only so much you can develop an idea in a short space of time. And my concern is that this is going to be not quite enough time so that the end result may not end up being quite as good. Although that said, I'm still going to look forward to it and I will be one of the first in line when it comes out. Yeah, fair. And I will see it at some point when I get access to it. It'll probably be on streaming in about five minutes, so it won't be too long before I can check it out. Probably. I think it's October it's getting released. Okay, so not far away at all. Let's move on. We're actually ending on a collection of horror stuff. And yes, this was planned. I did line (laughs) up the links in a specific order. Well, not a specific order. Here's all the horror stuff put it together. I put some thought into this. I don't just fire links on a page and call it a day. But anyway, Scream 7 has a development. 
And the director will be Christopher Landon, who directed the two Happy Death Day films, as well as Freaky, which I still haven't seen. You should. It's a lot of fun. That's basically it. He's directing Scream 7. I'm very torn about this. Even after seeing Scream 6, I'm still of the opinion that there is very dubious justification for its existence. I really don't think that, as it was suggested, that a continuation of a revived franchise is enough of a subgenre to claim it's distinctive enough to parody. And when the resident metafictional film nerd was going over the rules of what to expect, they really weren't much more than the rules that Randy expressed in Scream 2. And also in his video cameo in Scream 3, he actually even says, is this just another sequel? If so, same rules apply. Well, there were some things about Scream 6 that I did like. With the focus of the franchise now shifting away from Sidney, Gale and Dewey to Sam and Tara, I think having Sam being Billy's daughter and dealing with these murderous urges that may or may not be hereditary is actually quite an interesting way to take it and I think it's quite an interesting direction to take the franchise and is something I feel could have been explored a bit more and also the film's climax was staged brilliantly and had some very satisfying deaths but as I said I'm not certain that Scream 6 and Scream 5 slash Scream 2022, whatever you want to call it, really did enough to justify their own existence. Well, they made enough money to justify their own existence. That's all that's important to some people. Yeah, but from a narrative or creative standpoint. Yeah, which is never important to some people. Sadly, no. Though the fact that it's Christopher Landon directing it does make me a bit more interested in it. Because as I said, Freaky is a lot of fun, and Happy Death Day is legitimately one of my favourite films ever. I love the Happy Death Day movies. Yeah, I can endlessly rewatch them and never get bored. And also, just looking at them from a personal standpoint, I'm someone who finds repetition generally incredibly grating. So to have films where the core premise of them is constant repetition of events, but for me to not find that irritating in the slightest is an indicator of just how well they're executed. So in short, I'm unsure how necessary this film is, but I'm tentatively optimistic about what it might feature. Well, I liked 5 and 6, and I like some of this guy's previous work, so cool. I like the characters that are in the new Scream series. Melissa Barrera and Jenna Ortega are really good, and the fact that they seem to be moving away from keeping the legacy characters around is a good thing, although it's to do with pay when it comes to Neve Campbell. That's a separate and much larger problem. Yeah, it's a whole other thing. And they kind of do their disservice in Scream 6 by using a throwaway line to explain why she isn't there. But anyway, yeah, so it's happening. Nothing about the film is known yet, so we'll see what direction it takes when it gets closer to release, but that's happening. Our next horror bit of news, Kiernan Shipka will return to the horror genre in Totally Killer, a dark comedy set in the 80s where she hunts down a masked killer. The film directed by, I'm going to butcher this, Nanachka Khan, blends comedy and horror genres, a characteristic of Blumhouse Productions which is who are making it. Shipka's character, Jamie, is a modern teenage girl who is forced to grow up quickly and discovers her bravery while trying to escape the killer and navigate the 1980s. So the story is she travels back to the 80s to kill someone or catch a killer. This official synopsis is 35 years after the shocking murder of three teens, the infamous Sweet 16 killer returns on Halloween night to claim a fourth victim. 17-year-old Jamie ignores her overprotective mom's warning and comes face to face with a mass maniac and in the run for her life accidentally travels back to 1987. Really hate it when that happens. You fall over and you wake up in the past. Isn't that annoying? The year of the original killings. Forced to navigate the unfamiliar and outrageous culture of the 1980s, Jamie teams up with her teen mom, played by Olivia Holt, to take down the killer once and for all before she's stuck in the past. And there are some pictures. That sounds really fun. 
Also in it, Julie Bowen, who plays the mother, Olivia Holt, teenage mother, Randall Park, Lachlan Monroe, Charlie Gillespie, and Liana Liberato, and many, many more. So that sounds like a ton of fun. Yeah, just from reading what we can expect from the film, it seems like there's going to be less metafictional references to slasher movies, and it's going to be more focused on the time travel aspect of it, which I think is quite an interesting angle to take towards it. A bit like how Happy Death Day was more of the time loop than the slasher. Exactly, yeah. And then the sequel was more about the science fiction than the time loop and slasher. The whole swathes of Happy Death Day to you didn't feature any actual references to actual slasher killings. It was more about exploring the sci-fi aspect of it. Yeah, every now and again it was, oh yeah, we really need to get someone stabbed at some point. Well, we better do that. Yeah, periodically mentioning is need to do this before the killer gets you. Yeah, so it's probably going to be a bit more back to the future than slasher movie. Exactly, yeah. Which to be honest, I'm kind of glad about because as much as I love horror and slasher movies, I think the deconstruction of slasher movies, particularly 80s slasher movies, is harder to do in an interesting way than a lot of people think. There have been some very, very good examples of it. Like, as we are just saying, Scream films, in particular the original trilogy, did it exceptionally well. So I think if this film were to focus on that aspect of it too much, it would end up seeming too similar to similar efforts that came before it. But instead focusing on the time travel aspect and instead making metafictional jokes about that, then it will seem like something a bit different. And as a result, something that can be enjoyed a lot more. Yeah. And I love the cast as well. Yeah, there's some great people in there. So that's something to look forward to. Next horror thing that we're going to talk about. Ashley Green and Sean Ashmore are set to lead horror movie It Feeds, the first in a proposed 10-picture genre slate from LA-based Productivity Media Inc. and Canadian outfit Black Fawn Films. Currently in production, It Feeds will tell the story of a young girl who insists that a malevolent entity is feeding on her. Green portrays a clairvoyant therapist. That must make the job really easy who must confront Mm. her own personal demons to save the girl before she's taken completely. Ashmore takes on the role of an anguished father, desperately struggling to protect his daughter. Sounds fairly standard. When did Sean Ashmore start playing dads? Right. X-Men was, what, 2000 that came out? And that was only five years ago. (laughs) Yes, it must be something in Magic of Hollywood that allows these people to age actual decades in just a few years, should a specific role require it of them. Yeah. It sounds vaguely interesting, I guess. I don't know. This is it, yeah. It sounds very okay, but also kind of generic. I'll look out for it. I'll read more about it as the production goes and, and find out more specifics about it. But until then, all I can just say is that it just sounds like it will be passably average. Based on what we know now, yeah. Hey, our last thing. George A. Romero's final zombie movie, Twilight of the Dead, has got fresh impetus with producer, financier, roundtable entertainment, and a planned late 2023 start date in Puerto Rico. And you might wonder how George A. Romero could do this, because he's dead, but the estate is teaming up with the financier producer roundtable on the seventh and final installment of the Living Dead franchise. Romero had written a treatment for the movie before he passed in 2017, and regarded Twilight of the Dead as the conclusion to his epic saga, which comprised six movies and various spin-offs and remakes. The project was first revealed in 2021, but things have gone quiet since then. Script is now finished, having been taken on by Joe Netter, Robert Lucas and Paolo Zalati, who also worked on the treatment with Romero. Set on a tropical island, we are told Twilight of the Dead will delve into the dark nature of humanity from the perspective of the last humans on Earth who are caught between factions of the undead. True to the Romero oeuvre, it is being framed by the producers as a thought-provoking socio-political commentary wrapped in a genre piece. The last of the dead movie was Land of the Dead, apparently. Oh no, there was one since then, wasn't there? Two, actually. 
two since okay the land of the dead was the last good one if we're being honest we talked about big daddy and intelligent zombie leader whose fate is left an open question at the end of the pick all i remember is the big tank thing they had in that one dead reckoning i think the thing was called i think so can't remember surprising no one the team also tells us they haven't closed the door on the possibility of additional movies in a new franchise should this one go well yeah a romero zombie movie not made by romero himself i don't know what kind of legs this has but exactly yeah it was gonna happen wasn't it it's either this or we'll get a remake of night of the living dead again or something something was going to happen with the of the dead yeah because it's a franchise that makes enough money that ironically they can't let it lie yes i wish that sounded less scripted than it came out <laughs> as I mentioned the last two dead movies even though it was Romero himself directing them they were just not good film Die of the Dead was a found footage movie oh uh, yeah I remember not being able to see that because there was only one screening at Cineworld at the time it seemed like it was less a continuation of the franchise and more just capitalising on the found footage craze that was somehow still going on at that time see I never thought of the of the dead franchise to be part of one larger universe because they're also disconnected they're not really connected in any kind of narrative sense more like in a thematic one one of the primary through lines of it is that in each subsequent film the zombies featured are shown to be becoming marginally smarter as if they are evolving after originally having just been spat into creation as unthinking undead cannibals and over the years slowly developing into sentient beings in their own right and i think focusing on that is really the only way that twilight of the dead can not only have any real sense of conclusion and finality but i think also it's the only way for it to be any good because otherwise it's just going to be a generic zombie movie and how many needless hundreds of them exist yeah so that's that we're getting this whether we like it or not and we'll see how it pans out yeah, again i'll see when it comes out until then we we'll just have to see what else to say about it and hopefully that something revealed before then makes it sound interesting yeah and talking about Zack Snyder he did a great remake of Dawn of the Dead he did actually I think it's actually legitimately one of the best zombie movies easily this century but Army of the Dead is not indeed and I can only assume that that is the difference between whether or not you have a script written by James Gunn that's true yeah perhaps but anyway, that is us. We did our list. We have gone through the news and trailers and stuff of August 2023. Despite the strike being on, there's still plenty being announced. There's a lot of stuff coming out that we can either watch or not watch. How exciting. I'm just always happy when more horror gets announced because I love horror. It is my life and I love it. And it wasn't actually planned that you were going to be on in a big horror month. It just was a happy accident. I can just only be equally happy it turned out that way. Yeah. Definitely. So that was our chat about August 2023's news and trailers. Andrew, thank you for showing up to talk about all this stuff. Always a pleasure. And uh, thanks to our emergency podcasting hologram, Issa, for also turning up and talking about one of the things. That was quite a diversion. I'd like to thank Neil Stenson for the supplied music. If you like what you heard, please do hit subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts. Most of those platforms also have a rating and a review option on there. But Andrew, if there are stars on those platforms that we can review on, how many stars should they give us? That would be five, Greg the number of years since 2000. Yeah, I was trying to think of an interesting way of saying it. I couldn't think this time. I gotcha. If you want to talk to us about anything here or anything really, you can reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter slash X on our Neil Before blog. We're also on Blue Sky, the invite-only social media platform at the moment under also Neil Before blog, so you can get us on there. You can just leave a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk as well. As always, we hope you'll join us next time on Neil Before Pod. <laughs>